This is Jocko Podcast number 326 with Echo Charles and me, Jocko Willink. Good evening, Echo. Good evening. Throughout October 30th and 31st, 2011, in furtherance of the Drug Enforcement Administration's Drug Law Enforcement Mission in Afghanistan, special agents of the DEA's Foreign Deployed Advisory Support, or FAST team, conducted counter-narcotics, counterinsurgency operations with their police partners from the Afghan National Interdiction Unit, assisted by the Australian Defense Forces. The task force departed their base via four helicopters as part of a mission to execute Afghan drug warrants and to search for narcotics caches and heroin production labs. The team began to search the target area and accompanying Opium Bazaar when they began to receive sporadic incoming enemy fire. They accomplished their assigned duties and then maneuvered to the extraction location all while under sporadic enemy fire. When the task force arrived at the helicopter landing zones, they continued to receive effective enemy fire. One of the four helicopters was forced to make an additional orbit and subsequently land in the vicinity of Special Agents Piersante, Johnson, Vanderbilt, Harris, Stewart, Fisher, Portinga, and five members from the Australian Special Forces. This helicopter landed under fire. Special Agent Persante laid down suppressive fire, which enabled Special Agent Stewart, Harris, and Fisher to board the helicopter. Once inside, Special Agent Stewart continued applying suppressive fire. Special Agent Stewart directed an Afghan door gunner to initiate suppressive fire in an attempt to cover the remaining members of the team still outside the helicopter. Special Agent Persante was approximately 10 meters from the rear of the helicopter when he was hit by enemy fire. The round penetrated his ballistic helmet, entered above his right eye, and exited above his left eye, and he was immediately rendered unconscious and fell to the ground. Special Agent Portinga positioned himself at the rear of the helicopter and continued laying down suppressive fire as Special Agent Persante was being brought back into the helicopter. He instinctively put himself in harm's way and returned fire until all personnel were on board the helicopter. As the helicopter took off, Special Agents Vanderbilt, Johnson, and Harris immediately rendered first aid to Special Agent Persante and controlled his bleeding, maintained an open airway, and stabilized him. Special Agent Persante was eventually transferred to the Veterans Affairs Medical Center in Richmond, Virginia for continued treatment and rehabilitation. The actions of all agents involved both before and following the shooting were very clearly heroic. And that right there was an excerpt from an article by the U.S. Department of Justice who oversees the DEA and Special Agent Joseph Persante survived that round to the head. He became the first ever member of the DEA to receive the Secretary of Defense Medal for the Defense of Freedom and also received the Federal Congressional Badge of Bravery. But that bullet did do significant damage. Most significantly, it rendered Special Agent Persante blind. But 
he has continued to drive on, to grow, to teach, and to set an incredible example of perseverance for all of us. And it is an honor to have him here with us tonight to share some of his experiences and lessons learned. Joe, thanks for coming on, man. You're quite welcome. First, I want to say it's an honor to be part of this podcast, and I was very flattered that you guys asked me to be on it. Well, you're the first DEA guy we've got here, so you got another first under your belt now. <laughs> but you didn't start off in the D. Let's let's like I like to go back to the beginning. Let's figure out where you came from, how you ended up being who you are. Uh, born in Detroit, right? Yes, um, actually grew up, was born and raised in the city of Detroit. My dad was a police officer there. And at the time there was residency, so we had to live in the city. I'm actually third generation law enforcement officer in my family. When you say there was residency, what do you mean by that? You have to live in the city. You had to live in the city to be a police officer in the city? Yes, or any at the time, any city workers. Wow. If you're a fire um, fighter or, you know, work for the city sanitation, things like that, you had okay. to live in the city. So we all kind of clustered and huddled in little areas. And and your dad was a cop his whole career? That was what he did? Yes. Um, he retired um, in Detroit in 1990, then went on to work at the University of Michigan, their police department, and eventually became chief of police there. Did, so, you, did you have aspirations of being a cop as well? Yes. Um, you know, growing up, I always played team sports. I was fortunate enough to play college and football at a smaller school in southern Michigan. And I always liked that kind of team atmosphere. And my father, he worked conspiracy narcotics for years and years in the Detroit Police Department. And I just saw that kind of team environment, team atmosphere, and it kind of drew me to it. Even though my father never pushed me to go into law enforcement, and actually when I went away to college, um, my major at first was sports medicine. Mm. I wanted to be an athletic trainer, and then the more I thought about it, I'm like, you know what? I I really want to do this law enforcement thing. Mm -hmm. So I talked to my dad, and he's like, okay, you know, I support you. And if you're going to do the law enforcement, he worked on a DEA task force um, and a, a, a drug task force there. And he says, you know, I would encourage you to go federal just because the pay is a little better. You get to travel the world and you get to see and do a lot of things. And I've always been a, been a kind of rough tumble person. And DEA has always been known as the kind of blue collar federal law enforcement so he kind of tried to push me that way, and he had friends that still worked there. But unfortunately, when I graduated from college in December of 91, DEA was on a hiring freeze. So I went back home to the Detroit, Michigan area, and Detroit police was hiring, so I put my application there and got hired by the Detroit Police Department in February of 1993. Now, now when you say you were a rough-and-tumble kid, to me, it seems like when I talk to people that had police as parents, they, they're either like really good on the straight and narrow or they're kind of rebellious. Where, where were you at? Were you were somewhere in the middle? Yeah, you know, I kind of had a rebellious streak to me. But luckily, I had a, a strong father and a strong grandfather and kind of kept me um, on the straight and narrow. And my father was pretty tough on me. And but he always supported me. He always went to my athletic events, was there all the time. 
you know, he, you know, would put a foot up my ass if I needed, but also, <laughs> you know, was very loving and supporting. You know, I could still call my father today. Hey, Dad, I need help. He's like, okay, um, I'm on the way. And a little more background, um, my dad's father and actually my mother's father, they both, both served in World War II. And my dad's father, he actually landed in Omaha Beach on D-Day. And the second wave and later got a silver star pushing through Germany. Dang. Um, when you, did you have brothers and sisters? I have one sister. She's four years younger than me. Mm-hmm. But you were kind of the only son, so your dad was at every sporting event that there was. Oh, yes. <laughs> and he coached me um, every sport but football. Um, so... But to always, even at grade school, um, he would video my games at the old VHS video cameras, <laughs> and we sit down and watch the games after with him. And he'd be like, "You know, Joey." You know, they called me. My dad's name is Joe too, and my both grandfathers were Joe, so they called me Joey. Joey, you did this wrong. You did that wrong. My mom would be like, "Leave that poor kid alone." <laughs> hey, were you? How were you in school? Were you? Did you feel like you had to do good in school because your dad was kind of keeping an eye on you? Yeah, you know, I felt, you know, I needed to do, you know, well in school. Um, School, things, I I would say I I have, you know, I'm... I know what you're trying to say. Yeah, you know, know, I'm I'm a pretty athletic guy, but I've always had to work, work in life for things. You know, I was taught you work hard, you put the effort in, and if you didn't succeed at something, you go back and look at it, and you kind of become, kind of analyze yourself. Okay, what did I do right? What did I do wrong? What can I do better? I had a good example to, you know, put hard work in, mm-hmm. you know, and most often, hopefully it's going to pay off. And um, I just had a good example that way. And you played you played college football as well. Yes. You said. And you, how was that? How was that? Did you guys Win a lot? Did you lose a lot? What lessons did you take away from playing college ball? You know, I tell you what, um, I tell everybody, sports teaches a lot of lessons in life. Teaches you how to win, how to lose, how to be a team player, all those things. And I learned valuable lessons from sports. Now, in college, I went to a small school in Southern Michigan called Adrian College. We were the most winningest football team in Michigan in the 80s, all divisions. So we did really well. Um, when I was there, we won two league championships and actually went to the Division Three college national playoffs in 1988. So it was a good, you know, I, get, I was able to get my education and um, I excelled in college and football. I knew I wasn't going to be the tallest guy. You know, bless my mom, she's only like five foot. <laughs> So I better be strong and fast. So that's when I picked up the weights and um, kind of blew up as soon as I started lifting. So in college, I was um, an all-league player twice. I was team captain, team MVP. Um, In our league, we had uh, every week they listed an offensive and defensive player of the week. I made that defensive player of the week numerous times. So, you know, it was, you know, it was a good experience. You know, you, you know, get the bond with those, you know, the people you play with and you learn life lessons. And actually in college, you know, you finally get to do things, you know, classes that you're interested in your major. And I did really well in college. And actually in my major, I had over a three-point average and stuff. So, And you said you transferred or you switched from being in 
wanting to be go, become like an athletic trainer into what? Sociology, criminal justice. What? So you made the decision, hey, I'm going to go be a cop or something like yes, that. Yes, after after my freshman year. Um, at the time at our school, we didn't have a just specific criminal justice program. So it was sociology with the emphasis on criminal justice. And I continued sports and medicine as my minor degree. So then you get done with that. The federal, the DEA is not hiring, as you said. And so now you decide you're going to go and become a Detroit cop. Yes. Is it hard to apply for? How strict is it? Is it easy to get into? Did you third generation? Do you just get like a welcome mat at the front door to get in there? Uh, I, I wouldn't say that. But when I showed up to recruiter, you know, it was like, you know, they didn't give me any, cut me any slack at all. You know, you got to go take your little eye test and this and that. And, you know, you go through the process. Of course, it's not as intense and as detailed as a process getting hired federally because you have to get security clearance. Mm-hmm. You know, but I, I, you know, they do a good job and, um, you know, I had decent credentials and, you know, luckily I just didn't get in a lot of trouble or didn't get caught. So I didn't have bad things on my record. <laughs> so, you know, I got in fairly easy and showed up there and went through the academy and, um, I'm not only a kind of a musclehead guy, but I'm fairly intelligent. And I graduated top academically in my class and got this lamp of knowledge um, plaque and stuff, a little genie <laughs> lamp on there. You know, I say this, no great shakes. You know, this, my, I guess my competition there wasn't as, as great as level as the DEA um, academics, but um, it was pretty good. You know, you get to teach a lot, of, a lot of, learn a lot of things and, in Detroit, I grew up there all my life, so I kind of knew what I was getting into. And Detroit on the police department is kind of a bat tips of my fire. Um, you get to learn how to be the real police real fast. Mm-hmm. You know, it's kind of sink or swim. And, and, and do you immediately just go right out being like a beat cop in the street somewhere? Um, what they did is they took the top people out of our class and put us in this unit called tactical service section. We were um, a citywide unit that did crowd control. Um, Also, if there was a barricaded gun person, we would do outer perimeter. And we would work in areas where they were having problems, certain precincts, or the precincts got overrun with calls. And we would go and flood the area and help the precincts out. Mm. So it was kind of like a... Almost like a QRF, like a quick reaction force? Kind of like that in a way, you know, but, you know, we just um, answer the priority one and two calls, like the shots fired, things like that, robberies in progress. We took a little of those higher level calls. So it was pretty crazy. And Detroit's kind of a weird animal. Like I grew up on the east side. So I mostly was an east side guy. And when I became in TSS, we worked the whole city. So you might be in a couple different areas or a couple different precincts, as they call it, in one day. So when, where I grew up, if I got out and chased somebody and jumped a couple fences, I knew where the hell I was. <laughs> and I'll be on the west side, bail out, and I was pretty fast, and I could jump fences pretty good, so I could usually catch a lot of people, and I was in shape. So I'd jump a couple fences, I'd be in a yard <laughs> holding a suspect at gunpoint, and I wouldn't know where the hell I was at. I'd be like, radio, tech, three. I'm a couple blocks east of my original location. 
um, next to the burned out garage. But the problem was like every third garage is burned out. So, <laughs> so that was the day to day. So, so you did that right out of the academy. That seems like a strange thing to take someone that's brand new and put them in that kind of situation where you're going into these tough calls all the time out of the gate. That's trial by fire. Oh yes, but which was good is a lot of the better officers worked there at tactical service section. So you got to be trained and learn from some of the better police officers. Mm -hmm. So, you know, you really got to learn the job fast and um, from some good individuals. Like how many people were on the team? Did you guys show up in like a freaking armored truck or were you? Well, each shift we had, we ran two shifts, a day shift and then a power shift. The power shift was seven and like the three in the morning. Those are like the busiest times. Day and, shift and power shift. Yes. Power shift yep. <laughs> so we would roll out there eight to 10 cars okay. of two people in a car. You know, so we would flood an area. So it was good if you needed backup or you needed help. You know, somebody usually was there fairly fast. But it was, it was intense. And then after, at the time my dad finished up he was on the full-time SWAT team in Detroit and was crazy about Detroit being a big city. They didn't have a full-time SWAT team until 1986, mm. which to me kind of blows my mind. Yeah, that's crazy. And he was on, he was one of the original members on the team. And then after three years of working a patrol type unit, you could apply for a special unit or bureau, um, they call them also. And I tried out for the SWAT team and later made the SWAT team. And my last year on the job, I was on the full-time tactical team, which was, you know, pretty pretty intense. You got to do a lot of fun stuff, and you didn't have to do a lot of paperwork. <laughs> but usually the sergeant of the team, you know, he did the write-up after the barricaded gun person. Or unless you got into, of course, a shooting, you would have to do a report. And So, so you went right from that tactical service section into the SWAT team? Yes. How many years did you did you do the, the tactical service section? Three years and then one year on the full time SWAT team and then did, I did got you did you shoot any did you fire your shot fire your weapon at all during those three years with the tactical service? Not with the TSS, but on the SWAT team it it took a while to get hired by DEA. You know, government sometimes it's hurry up and wait mm -hmm. and um I was sitting around and didn't hear anything that I had failed something. And time went by, months went by, and I get a call, and they're like, Mr. Persani, are you still interested in a job with DEA? I said, of course I am. Yeah, um, we had lost your application. We found it now. Oh, man. I'm like, this is, has every information about me, you know, <laughs> parents, siblings, every neighbor I've ever had, you know, that I've had. And, and the, the um, process kind of really sped up. So I'm like – three months out from the academy and we go to a barricaded gunman and one of the precincts in Detroit and it's an ex-military person. And they have kind of mental problems and they would um, hold the neighborhood and their family at bay of shooting at them uh, every so often. So we respond and we began take over from the precinct, began negotiating with them and they start shooting at our armor personnel carrier through the window, and um, it's starting to ramp up. And um, we had some officers stationed in the backyard, and the person goes out and, you know, exchanging, shooting at them, but they don't have a clear shot at the suspect. And they had a car in the driveway. 
And my team was on a break. We were like four or five houses down in between houses. And we had um, the sub, one of the Suburbans we had with us, and we had ha- like half our gear on. And they're like, do not let them get mobile. We feel they're trying, they're going to might try to go for the car. And then sure as crap, they go for the car. So I jump in the passenger side of the suburb. My buddy drives, jumps in the driver's seat. We're like half dressed. Um, we just got our MP5 submachine gun strapped around us. So we pull behind the car to try to block them in and they start to ram us. And we're like, oh crap. And by this time it was dark. And then I see a muzzle flash <clears throat> through the rear window and they start shooting at us. So I, um, exited the vehicle tactically and my partner did and um, we opened up into the car and unfortunately had to um, dispatch the person and I was like waiting all this time for DEA and then finally I get in a shooting but thank you know thank god it was a good shooting I didn't you know there was no drama with that but Mm -hmm. I was just like just my luck you know wait all this time and then I get in this you know critical incident How, how often were you guys as a SWAT team doing hits you know, it varied. Sometimes in a month, we four or five times would be maybe a barricaded gun person. Um, sometimes we would serve like felony warrants for more dangerous individuals. Uh, once in a while, we go out with narcotics. If they were hitting a spot which they deemed was pretty dangerous and needed a little more trained unit, so we'd go and do that. But you know, did a lot of training, tactical training, a lot of shooting. You know, and as you can attest to, the more you shoot, the more proficient, you know, it's kind of a perishable skill. Mm-hmm. So, you know, we got to do all those type of things. So it was it was a good experience. And you were just sporting that 1990s MP5. Yes, nine <laughs> millimeter. <laughs> yeah, I was like, oh, yeah, you're in a vehicle and you have an MP5. And I'm, I, you know, in the, in the 90s for me and the SEAL teams, you know, we used the MP5 and we thought it was cool until we had to shoot somebody that was more than, you know, 50 yards away. And all of a sudden you think, this is not a good weapon to have. No, or they have a ballistic vest with plates that's not going through it. Yeah, You know, and the A-pillar in cars will stop that 9 millimeter too. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, that's, uh, I guess we've all transitioned away from the the MP5 now. Uh, But damn, that's an accurate, easy-to-shoot weapon. I think that's like, sometimes people ask me about home defense weapons, like like for a female maybe. And I think, man, an MP5 is not a bad call. You're in the house. You're only going to shoot someone that's in the house, most likely. You know, so I think it's and it's so easy to shoot, so accurate. Yes, well, you know, you know, there's very, very little to almost no recoil yeah. on that weapon. Yeah, and with a suppressor on them, it's nothing, nothing. Um, but that's a lot of experience that you had. I mean, just doing hits all the time in the 90s, just that kind of experience. I remember from the SEAL perspective in the 90s, you know, we looked at SWAT teams, especially, you know, city, big urban center SWAT teams. You guys were doing, you guys were doing work all the time. So the experience that you all had, and, and I, you know, we would work with LA SWAT from time to time. Um, SEALs would work with LA SWAT, and it was, we were kind of, we were kind of envious of the fact that they got to go out and do the job. And, and you know, it's the same thing for you up there in Detroit in the 90s. You just, if you were in the military in the 90s, chances were you weren't doing anything real. Yes. You know, so you getting that experience is, that's a lot of experience to have um, in the 90s from that perspective. Uh, so 
Meanwhile, you get done with that, you spend that this year. So how long were you on the SWAT team for? About a year. A year on the SWAT team. And that's and you got picked up for the DEA after three months of being at the SWAT team? Is that what you said? No, I was there a little longer. Um, mm-hmm. But it just took, um, I got in that fatal shooting right three months before um, I was ready to start my academy date. Got it. For the academy. I, I, I got hired with DEA in June of 1997. And and this was, you like the DEA because they're, and I actually never heard that the DEA was the blue collar of the feds. I like that. I didn't know that before. That's the reputation that they have, huh? At the time, I, you know, things have, you know, things are changing in mm-hmm. law enforcement now and everything. And But at the time, we were kind of the roughnecks, mm-hmm. so to speak. So you get you get to go to what is it? They have the DEA Academy. Is that yeah, what they have? Yes, it's in it was in, in Quantico, Virginia, um, inside the Quantico military base. Anyway, when I went through, us in the FBI shared the same academy. Um, we since have our own academy that's right next to the FBI Academy, but we still share the gun ranges. Um, and driving track and gym with the FBI. And how long is that pipeline? You know, it's like um, like 16, 18-week academy. Mm-hmm. And what are you doing? Is it legal? Is it physical? Is it, what, what are you doing? It's a little bit of everything. Um, where the police academy was more paramilitary, DEA was more gentleman academy. Mm-hmm. You know, you didn't have to line up for inspection every day. I see a speckle lint on your, you know, your uniform and getting, you know, the front lean and rest position and all that jazz. Um, but it was very intense, very um, academically challenging, um, very physically challenge, challenging. We did a lot of shooting, a lot of tactical training, a lot of scenarios. I was um, very impressed with it. The biggest thing was you're away from your family for four months. Mm-hmm. As opposed, when I went to the Detroit Police Academy, you, it wasn't an overnight thing. You come and go and stuff. But it was a very, very intense academy. And then when I went through the DEA, you couldn't go back to where you were hired from. They had this thing with our administrator, who's the person who runs DEA. Um, you couldn't go back because there might be uh, potential for corruption. And to me, in my, if you're going to be corrupt, you're going to be corrupt wherever you go. <laughs> True. So um, we, um, you know, three quarters of the academy, they put a list out, and a different spots opened. And you know, say you got 50 individuals in your academy class, and there's 50 spots, and of course, it's where individuals are needed. And of course, DEA with the drugs coming from Mexico, a lot of border spots. Mm-hmm. So I'm like, well, I don't speak Spanish, so maybe I won't have to go there. Um, a lot of spots in New York, L.A., you know, big cities like that. And you get to pick your top three choices. You're not guaranteed necessarily to get any one of those. And you can work it out with the class. You know, you get to sit there beforehand and, okay, there's so many spots here. Who wants to put in for one of these spots? And you can kind of work it out, and then you submit your top three. And like I said, you're not guaranteed to get them any of those spots, and if you speak Spanish and there's some border spots, you're probably gonna go to the border. And I, um, So what'd you put for your top three slots that you wanted? I put Phoenix, Arizona, um, number one. I had never been to Phoenix, but was gonna have to move, and I was married at the time, and my wife had, at the time, had dual custody with her children, two boys, young boys, 
And she's going to have to move away from them, so I kind of let her pick. And then I put um, Fort Lauderdale and Miami. I was, I had, being from Michigan, I had a lot of family that lived, vacationed seasonally in Florida and in the uh, winter months. But I also had a grandmother that had a place in Arizona. And then my wife at the time had a grandfather that lived there. So put in for Phoenix, Arizona, and as long as you weren't like a butthead and this and that, and you, you know, you, you more or less got one of your top three spots. So I was very fortunate in that. So I got that selected and, and got Phoenix. And then. Um, so what do you do when you show up? You're a new guy. Are you a new guy? They call you a new guy? What do they call you? Oh, yeah. They're kind of, you know, <laughs> effing new guy, you know, all kind of stuff, you know. And um, so I find out that I'm going to show up there. I'm going to the. Clandestine, clandestine laboratory task force group We're going to be doing meth labs mm. now from detroit i've never seen methamphetamine one time really um but it's not really an urban city drug mm. um meth's kind of more of a white trash drug mm. per se you know in the city you know you have heroin or they call it in the city heron and um <laughs> of course cocaine um, crack cocaine marijuana and things like that so I just leave the academy, and they're like, Joe, you're going back to the academy for clan lab school. I'm like, oh, shit. So I got stuck in the um, the clan lab group for my first four years, but it was kind of good because it was a local task force, ran out of the, the Maricopa County Sheriff's Office. And um, you got to learn the basics of narcotics investigations, how to write a search warrants, how to deal with informants, which is kind of our bread and butter. And you get to learn the job. So it really taught me how to become a DEA investigator. And I would say on the low end of the estimate, I've been in at least 500 methamphetamine labs. <laughs> and we really, you know, we were wearing all the protective gear in it, but really don't know what the long-term exposures to <laughs> all these caustic and hazardous chemicals are. I, I uh, had a neighbor whose nephew um, got involved in meth, and he told me he had been to prison, and he got out of prison. And when I met him, the nephew had gotten out of prison, and I met him and was talking to him, and he was, yeah, I, I, was, I was just got out of prison. He said, and he told me, he said, when I tried crystal meth for the first time, as soon as I tried it, I realized that was the only thing I ever wanted to do for the rest of my life was more crystal meth. And he stole everything from his mom, everything from his grandma, everything from his uncle, everything from all of his friends, ruined every relationship in San Diego, and then went to somewhere else, San Bernardino, and made friends there and stole from all of them, and then did that all across the country until he finally wound up in Texas, and you know that's where he finally got rolled up and sent to prison. But that that meth thing is freaking crazy, huh? No, it's crazy. You know, you know these drugs are crazy, especially these harder drugs. Like as you kind of said, it controls their whole life. You know, and most of the labs are smaller. We call them mom and pop labs or cooking ounces. <laughs> That's cute. You know, you know, it, it's um, they they make enough to get their own for free, and you know, and sell a little bit to their friends. You know, so they get theirs for free and. You know, they're cooking in these houses with these little kids, mm. you know, and everything is off-gassing into the, you know, into the air, getting into the carpet and walls and everything else. 
So we started bringing child protective services with us when we would do methamphetamine lab warrants. And they would bring the kids to the hospital and when they would test them, you know, a high percentage of them would test positive for methamphetamine. Just because the stuff, you know, was in the carpet and the atmosphere, you know, it just breaks my heart. You know, me having a daughter, you know, these little kids involved. And then not only would they get charged with the meth lab and manufacturing, they would get charged with child abuse from CPS also. So you would do these investigations. You're, you're get, are you getting human intelligence that's telling you, hey, I get, my, I get my meth from this person over here. Then you find out where that person lives. Then you track them for a little while, figure out you know, where they're doing suspicious activity. And then do you do a hit on it? How does that work? Yes, that's one of the means with an informant. Hey, you know, you know, informants, you know, some are trying to work off charges. Some are just paid informants and they go around and that's what they do. You know, so-and-so is manufacturing meth here. You know, I saw, you know, these glassware items. I saw this part of the cooking procedure. I saw these chemicals, you know, and then you do, you know, some more background and then you do, you know, some investigation, surveillance and use kind of some of our techniques that we use to, you know, kind of make sure and validate the informant. And we also get information from different places to sell these chemicals. You know, Joe Blow is buying, you know, keeps buying, you know, every month so many pounds of red phosphorus, so many pounds of iodine crystals, or the different stores when you could buy the cold pills, the pseudoephedrine or ephedrine tablets over the counter, they would kind of, some stores would work with us and they would get license plates. So we'd do a workup and, um, you know, find out where these people lived and start an investigation. And then when we got enough probable cause for a search warrant, we would hit these locations. And now because of the, you know, the dangers of meth labs, a lot of times you don't know what the atmosphere was. So you, when you raided it, you would have to go in with full SCBA self-contained breathing apparatus, mm-hmm. but you didn't know what the environment and oxygen level was in the houses. And of course you got this big tank on your back and it's kind of cumbersome. And a lot of local SWAT teams were clan lab trained for tactics. So there were some little smaller tactical bottles you could use. So a lot of unknowns and you know, one of our investigative techniques you go through and garbage cans when they put it on the curb. So a lot of these meth people that know that we would pull trash. So they would save every bit of lab trash they ever had in one room. So you're missing, you know, you're missing, mixing acids and bases together and things are off casting. So it's not a very safe environment to say the least. Um, Real quick, what's a paid informant? Um, They're actually almost like a professional informant. But it's like for money seizure and drug seizures, we would pay them money. So they go around and work and travel sometimes from city to city just to make money as an informant. Hmm. You know, and at different times when, you know, budgets and we had good money and, you know, they got a certain percentage of a, a, a cash seizure or asset seizure, you know, they can make some fairly decent money. And what, these are just guys sort of off the street or do they apply for that job? Or like it, it's really, you know, you, you have to fill out a, a package for a person that wants to be a confidential source. Of course, you have to run their criminal history, make sure they have no active warrants, and you know you have to supervise them pretty tight. 
and um, you know some people get imp- approved for to work as informants. Some don't just because their criminal history and their stuff is just so bad. Mm-hmm. You know, so it's you know it's a catch twenty two. You know, you can't get a choir bo- choir person or choir boy, you know, to catch people, but mm-hmm. it, it's it's a fine line, and you yeah, got yeah. you have to manage it well. And as you're doing this, and you say you went into over 500 meth labs in how many years was that? Four years. In four years. So that's like, you know, hitting a meth lab every two or three, maybe four days going into those things. Did you feel like, hey, we're making a dent? Or sometimes did you just feel like we're just overwhelmed and this is, we could keep doing this forever? It got to the point where it was bad for a while that you almost felt overwhelmed because there were so many. And it was so easy to get the precursor chemicals to manufacture methamphetamine here in the United States. So then we started, as a whole DEA, we started cracking down into the companies that made the um, ephedrine tablets or the pseudoephedrine pills, which is one of the primary precursor chemicals of methamphetamine, and would track where they're shipping and made it harder to get. And that's why you probably see, like, if you buy any cold medication that has pseudoephedrine, you got to buy it. You have to get it from behind the counter now. Right. Because people were going in and just, you know, buying two, stealing two, two boxes, and they called it like smurfing pills, and they would get enough to make, you know, how much methamphetamine they wanted to make. So that started really putting, a, we saw that started putting a dent into it. You know, and of course, you know, then originally when I was working these labs, of course, there was a lot of methamphetamine coming up from Mexico, but it wasn't that pure. So a lot of the true tweakers did not want it. They wanted that real pure glass, 98, 99% you know, percent pure methamphetamine, which was homegrown made. Mm-hmm. And then once the um, we, you know, cracked down the precursors, and harder to get here, Mexico started picking up their game and started making the real, real pure methamphetamine down in Mexico and sending it up through the border. So does that mean you were dealing with the cartel, the big drug cartels? Um, yes, a lot. And especially when I worked in Phoenix, you know, of course, that's what is, you know, the Southwest is controlled by the Mexican drug cartels. Um. Do you have any, you know, big memorable operations or uh, that you did that you were a part of? Yes. Um, like I said, most of the labs were like mom and pop tweaker labs, but I was able to do a um, couple of pretty big, we call them Mexican national labs, where they're making multiple, multiple pounds at one time. And um, the sheriff's office had some information that um, they had a couple guys came in, they wanted to work for money, and they knew of this big Mexican national lab west um, of Phoenix in an area called Whispering Ranch. You know, and we're like, okay, I went with a guy, I went with another partner to see what they had to say. You know, a lot of times, a lot of things can be BS, and people overhype and overblow it up. You know, so we go out there, and you know, hey, this is a group of these Mexican nationals. You know, they're making, you know. 30, 40, 50 pounds of meth at a time, and they're cooking out in this real rural location, you know, so we get a workup and start doing some investigation, 
and identify where the people are living in the city and we have an informant that's willing and knows when they're out there cooking mm-hmm. you know so we're building up a plan and you know of course it's out in the middle of nowhere so there's no address of this place there's a parcel number so you're getting like a gps grid coordinates <laughs> to hit this place and that's what's on the, the, the search warrant and you know, you know, how are we going to hit this place in the cooking? Are we going to do an air assault? What are we going to do? So we finally, it got up and um, we got close, okay? They said they're going to cook this weekend. And what's the time frame on all this? Like, how long does this take? Is it is it weeks? Is it days? Is it months? It all depends. It varies. I think this one in particular, um, I think we were working on it for a couple months. Mm-hmm. So the informant says, I think they're going to cook this weekend. I said, okay, we'll, we'll get ready. So, you know, we're preparing and getting, you know, as much information as we have typed up in the search warrant and everything. And we knew there was a, a property close to them, which the guy was kind of involved. And if they were going to run from the lab location, they more than likely they were going to go hide at their res- that residence. You know, so the informant calls me, okay, they're going out and buying a bunch of ice. So one of the processes of cooking meth at the end, you got to start adding ice to things and cool it down. So we knew, okay, they're cooking. Mm -hmm. They're almost, they're getting close to done. So we spin up the team. We put an affidavit with the, the informant says, and we get it signed by a judge. And we were working with the sheriff's office at the time. And it was decided we're not going to do an air assault. We're going to convoy in there. And, you know, this is a rural location, you know, and you convoy, you know, in a desert-type environment, you're kicking up dust and stuff. They can see you coming from five miles away. How big of a team are you bringing? And this is like an assault team? Yeah, we're bringing the um, the, um, the the Maricopa County SWAT team. You know, it's probably 20-something individuals. Our lab team, you know, we probably got – 10 individuals or so, and then we're bringing chemists and hazmat and everything out. So it's a pretty good force. Big convoy. Big convoy, a lot of dust. Big dust up. (laughs) So, of course, um, the plan was the SWAT team is going to hit the lab location. Do you put a recon element out at all? Or do you do aerial or nothing? We had an aerial prior, but we didn't have time to to get people laid in there, laid in there to do it. We would have liked that to happen, but it just wasn't feasible yep. with the situation. Yep. So, of course, the SWAT team hits it. Hey, we got a huge lab up cooking, but nobody's here. We're like, oh, shit. So the group that I was with, we go to, you know, we. So wait, let me catch that. So the SWAT team hits it. They find the lab and there's no people there. Yes, it's up and cooking. <laughs> oh, man. Okay. So. Like I, I said earlier, I said, if they run, they're probably going to go to this other gentleman's house. So we go to that house and um, we hear some noise and some scurrying in the house. And we hear like a lady like calling for help. Mm. So we're like, damn, they're in there. So Egnance in circumstances, we enter the house. And they're all trying to hide in this back bedroom. Got one guy's halfway up the chimney. The other guy's lying in bed with his muddy boots and everything. I'm like, he's sleeping and laying on the couch. And I'm like, really, guys? <laughs> We're going to fall for this. So we, we brought him back over to the lab and, you know, processed the lab and ended up being a, 
nice size lab. They think they had like 50 pounds of methamphetamine in solution. And then it later led to, they end up cooperating and then hit um, another big lab in South Phoenix. And that individual, he also was running labs in um, Riverside, California too. Mm-hmm. So he was wanted you know, by Riverside Sheriff and this and that, and we end up hitting them and getting a, um, a big lab at that time and we make entry with the SWAT team and this, is, this guy was living on a horse property at horses and stuff. Wait, where was this? This guy was in Phoenix as well? Yes. Or it, Phoenix area? Yeah, South Phoenix, actually. South so Phoenix. this guy was a legit, like he had horses and a ranch of some kind? Oh, so yeah. So this guy was doing well. And had a ranch in... Um, Riverside too. Yeah, because I kind of get the impression, you know, when you talk about like the mom and pop labs, that a lot of people are just kind of getting away with what they can, and then they eventually get busted. And that's yeah, that. and they're broke. But as occasionally a, you bro- have somebody that broke as the joke. I and mean, these people, they they're in it for making the money. Mm-hmm. And um, yeah, it's um, this guy who we hit um, in South Phoenix. He actually taught the other people in the other lab how to cook. Mm. So yeah, we we go in there and he's in the back cooking and he's cooking with a 22 liter flask, a big triple neck flask. It's a good size flask, about the size of a basketball, a little bigger. Mm-hmm. So when the SWAT team goes in, he takes the flask and smashes it on the ground. You know, but of course you take the samples there, you know, he's not mm-hmm. gonna, you know, hit, we figure out what's in there. And right. so yeah, and he, you know, we found some, you know, methamphetamine in the house and everything. We're like, what's this? Oh, that is feed for the horses. And that's not feed for the damn horses. Come on. How, what happens to these guys? You go, then you, you wrap them up. They immediately go to jail. You wrap them up. He went to jail. You know, they did some search warrants on his place in Riverside in California. And then we indicted him and, you know, put him in prison for a while. How long is a while? Like a, this guy, his name was Taro, Thomas DeHaro Sanchez. I think he got like 10 years. Mm-hmm. So he's probably out by, he's probably listening to this right now. <laughs> yeah, probably, perhaps, you know. You know, but this lab, oh, hell, this is back in, whew, this one, um, I think 99. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, for sure. Yeah, he's back out. You know, I forgot to ask you this. When you got in that shooting back when you were with the Detroit, what did you have any lessons learned from that about the way it happened about what you what how your reaction was did you do something well did you do something bad did you feel like your training worked did you feel like your training didn't work like how how was that experience that yes that's a very good question with all the training we had you know the different scenarios and different barricaded gun people i i just reacted with my training mm-hmm. you know i saw the muzzle flash i knew it was gunfire and you know i just did what I had to do to neutralize, you know, to stop the threat. Mm-hmm. So the training you had worked? 100%. You know, I didn't even think, you know, I didn't even, don't even remember looking through my sights. I know I did. Mm-hmm. You know, you get that perceptual narrowing, you know, when you're in a fight or flight or a gunfight, you know, where your eyesight increases, your hearing decreases, you start so you fi- find motor skills. So you felt all that stuff? Yes. What about the, you You were the passenger and another guy was driving? Yes. Did he get hit or was he okay? No, he was okay. He um, he fired like four or five shots and I had my MP5 on full automatic and I just fired burst until the weapon ran dry. Damn, going full auto, huh? Yeah, I was like, hey, um, I'm going to end this as quick as possible. Yeah. 
You know, you, people get all these, you know, lucky shots. You know, you're chasing these, you know, perpetrators, or whatever, and they're running from you, and, and they take the gun and shoot it over their head and hit you, you know, dead between the eyes. Yeah, yeah. Uh, what about doing all these, you know, doing all these hits over the years with the DEA down in the Phoenix area? You know, you you obviously are starting to pack away some good, some good, you know, methodologies and and thought processes as you're going to do these things. Like, what were your big takeaways at, at, as you as you developed as a you know as a agent? I always was very tactically proficient, and I think one of my fortes and strong points as an agent was being able to deal with people. And that's what I, I suggest that anybody who gets in federal law enforcement, I would advise them to be a local law enforcement officer first, but you get to learn the job. You get to learn how to deal with people. And I happen to be very good at dealing with informants and I could work informants well. What, what do you think was that, what, what made you good at it? One, I think my street smarts mm-hmm. growing up in Detroit, you know, and being able to talk the lingo, and look the part, you know, in life, unfortunately, a lot of times, when you first go in a situation, especially criminals, they're gonna size you up. They're gonna say, does this individual look like they know what they're doing? Can I trust this person? You know, but a lot of times these people that are working for us, they're risking their life and they have to feel confident that you're gonna do your best to protect them. Mm-hmm. And I also learned never promise somebody something you can't deliver you know don't promise them well you know you work a couple weeks and you get a couple you know i can make all your charges go away it's not up to it's not up to the agents you know you have to bring their cooperation attention to the prosecutor which then brings it to the judge and you know those decisions are made then and um also treat people like a peep a person you know, you don't have to start, you know, go up talking down to somebody. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm the big bad fed and, you know, you're just the lowly peon drug dealer. You don't do that. Mm-hmm. You know, I start off giving everybody respect. Now, if you want to go sideways, we'll go sideways. Mm-hmm. But I'm going to give you the benefit of the doubt at first. You know, in informants, too, you got to be careful. You know, they're informants. They're, they're criminals. You know, you know that they can turn their back on you too. So you gotta, you know, you never can trust them 100%. You do your best and, you know, and you lay the, you know, lay the, the ground rules and everything. And then, you know, you, you manage your informants, you know, going on from there. But, you know, being, a, you know, having a good informant, you're kind of like, you know, they're, they're confidant, you know, there's therapist, everything else. You know, your phone's going to be ringing in the middle of the night and your phone's going to want to talk to you, you know. Because his girlfriend left him he or left whatever. He left him or he's, <laughs> they're doing this, or, you know, they're, you know, he's thinking about making a bad, you know. You need to answer those calls. And a lot of people don't like to do that. But if you want to do well at the job at a high level, that's kind of things you have to do. You got to put the work in. How many sources would you be running at a time? Like how many people would you be working with? How many informants? Um, usually I kept anywhere from three to five informants at any one given time. And what does what, what the trajectory of their lives look like? I mean, do they do they end up, they just do that until they eventually get caught and killed? Do they do it until they eventually, you know, do something that sends them to jail? Do they ever get out of that life? 
it's kind of a mixture. Mm-hmm. You know, some do it, you know, they think they're slick and they're going to play both sides and do they get caught mm-hmm. and go to prison. You know, some get killed. You know, they get found out. You know, we do everything we can to protect their identity and some do it for a while or some are, you know, trying to help their legal situation or a family member's situation or just doing it for money and, you know, eventually move on and get on with their lives and get back into some normalcy of life, you know. And when I was a DE agent and a police officer, you know, I didn't gauge my success on how many people I arrested and this and that. I gauged my success on how many people did I help to get their life together. You know, just because a person, you know, gets caught up in drugs or some crime activities, it doesn't necessarily mean they're a bad person. You know, they made some bad decisions. So I gauge my success mostly on, hey, how many people this year did I help? Yeah, that's you must start to really uh, understand the way people operate too, especially dealing with all these people and you're hearing from them all the time, like the insight that you get into interacting with people. Are they, they're showing up there, most of them though, they, do they, most of the informants have some kind of criminal background and that's how they end up in this situation? Most of them do, yes. Okay, so at what point, or where were you when September 11th happened? I was um, in my house in Phoenix getting ready to go to the gym because I never knew how long I was going to work, so I always been into working out and keep myself fit. So I'd get up and work out before work, and I'm sitting there watching the news And when the first plane hit. I said, a small plane just hit the World Trade Center. So then, of course, we're all, you know, people were glued to the TV. Then the second plane hit, and they're like, this is not a small plane. And, you know, of course, all the chaos and everything that went on that day. I ended up going to the gym and, you know, work, you know, hey, you know, we don't know where we're going to get hit from next, you know, so it's all hands on deck. And, you know, you know, you had the plane hit the Pentagon, and our DA headquarters is right across the expressway from there so people who had office on that side saw the plane smash into the pentagon and so if things were in chaos for a minute like to say the least and did they did they start to think about how to utilize the dea for immediately trying to assist like the national effort did it change i'm saying i guess i'm asking did it change like your immediate life your immediate job or was it okay well we still got to you know, arrest people that are making meth, so you're gonna continue doing that, or was it some kind of change? What kind of happened, one of the changes that happened pretty fast was we, when we debrief an informant, there's different things you have to put in there, like different blocks. You know, what is the drug-related activity they have known right now? What is the non-drug-related activity? And then they started a terrorist-related activity. Did you know, you know, any people doing terrorist-related activities? And being in the Klan Lab scene, um, so a lot of the individuals who sold and made money out of the ephedrine in pseudoephedrine were Middle Eastern individuals. Mm-hmm. So, of course, you know, they were like, you know, you know, get all your Middle Eastern informants and see if they have any terrorist activity. And we had a lot, DEA had a lot of Middle East, you know, with the, the drugs and the pseudoephedrine. So FBI then wanted to come over and started debriefing our informants, you know, about terror, terrorist-related activities. 
was there much of a connection or was it more of them just trying to make money? Um, there were some, you know, th- th- there were some, you know, some were, you know, sending money back and things like that. And, you know, when the military first went over to Afghanistan, you know, we had some intel, but we didn't know, you know, other, you know, Ben Laden had his training facilities over there. But, yeah, when the U.S. military went over there, they shortly realized that the Taliban, those insurgent groups were making their money for their legal terror activities by the sale and reduction of heroin. Mm-hmm. And that's one of the first questions I get. Why is DE, why was DEA over in Afghanistan? So, you know, so the, the military, they knew they were not subject matter experts on that. So that's when they reached out to the DEA. Hey, guys and gals, we need help here. Right. And we didn't have a kind of tactical team that was up to speed to do this at the time. Um, years prior to that, we had an operation called Operation Snowcap, where we were in Columbia and other cocaine manufacturing destinations and hitting coca labs, mm-hmm. you know, with, you know, partner forces and this and that. So DEA had to start up a team. So they used some of the individuals that worked in Snowcap and developed this FAST team, this Foreign Deployed Advisory and Support Team, to help the military and mentor our partner force over there because we really don't have over there you know any like criminal authority Mm -hmm. so in the afghans they were behind the time so we went over you know the military you know they got plenty of trigger pullers and of course we can pull triggers too but they went for expertise on investigations Mm -hmm. how do we handle these how do we process these labs because in Afghanistan, even though heroin production is crazy, this, the penalties for getting caught manufacturing drugs over there are very, very severe. And we can actually take somebody off the battlefield a lot longer, you know, for drug-related things than just for, say, you know, you, you hem somebody up for tactical questioning, and then they're back directly on the battlefield. Mm-hmm. You know, but the issue is, you know, we're working with – U.S. and coalition special ops teams over there because most of these labs are well behind enemy lines and that's their money, you know, so they're going to fight like hell to keep them. Mm -hmm. So you have to be up to speed to run with these, you know, these special ops guys. You know, so at first they just had a, you know, put a a solicitation out. Hey, you know, um, this is what the mission's going to be. We need some volunteers. You know, some of the guys been that, done that in the past and, Maybe we're special ops guys, but at the current time, maybe they weren't in the best shape. And um, they would get over there and we're having problems keeping up. Got it. So that's when our FAST team instituted a selection process. And that selection process, they took various areas of selections from different special ops teams and put a selection together. Mm-hmm. You know. And, and at what point did you hear about that and at what point did you – volunteer for it I knew the fast team was going on you know I started hearing rumbles about it in 2005 time frame but the problem is in the field um, the basic agents didn't really know what was going on with this fast team I had a buddy that went to the fast team he was um, Marine Corps officer and 
I was pushing on with my career, and I've always, no matter what I've done, I've tried to go to the highest level, whatever I did in life. So, you know, I was just kind of like, you know, sitting around and like, hey, you know, wonder what this fast team's doing. Were you still in Phoenix at this time? Yes, I was. So you were in Phoenix from like 1998, 1997, 1998, all the way. 1997 until I actually got selected on the fast team in October 2009. So you're there for a while. So you have over 10 years experience as a DEA agent on the ground doing, and was that whole... 10 years, was that all that time doing the meth lab stuff? The first four years, and then I went on to a, a conspiracy group where we were higher level traffickers. I worked on um, a task force with a lot of the local officers. And when, when you're, what's the conspiracy group all around? I mean, it sounds cool that we know that, right? You, you know, <laughs> yes, yeah, exactly. A lot of things going sounds real cool, you know? And we have, you know, real cool acronyms and everything else, you know? Um, you go, you're going after mid-level to higher-level dealers, mm-hmm. and um, still meth mostly, or are they dealing everything? Meth, cocaine, marijuana, okay, heroin. So you had a mixture. So Phoenix is kind of a weird animal. You're kind of close to the border, so it's a transshipment point. So a lot of the drugs are coming in, coming up from the southwest border into cities like. Tucson and Phoenix, and they're staged there. They only stay there a short period of time, and those drugs are picked up and sent out to the East Coast. So you got to be like on your game to get stuff. You know, because mm-hmm. you know you might have a stash house loaded up one day and it's gone the next. So you had to really be on your game, you know, and move fast to do these things. So you know, I worked in a, a combination of different groups, and I called my buddy and I'm like, "Hey, what the hell are you guys doing there?" Are you guys just doing training or are you guys going out and doing missions? He goes, Joe, you know, we're, you know, working with some of the best units in the world. This is when world. you're asking one of your buddies about fast comp. Yes. Uh, okay, got it. You know, what are you guys doing? You know, we're training and working with some of the best units in the wor- world. You know, we're doing things what you would think DEA would be doing. You know, we're doing this high level stuff. And at the time, Every year they would put out a solicitation for, for to go through the FAST selection. And you need it to be at least a GS-12, so that usually takes about three to four years to get to a GS level 12. And they wanted people who had experience of how to be a DEA agent. So, and then you put in for the selection and then if you get picked, you know, you go through tryouts. And mm-hmm. I was 39 when I put in for selection. You know, as we get older, we don't recover as fast as we once did. And Some people. Yes. <laughs> and your, potential, your, your, your potential for injury sometimes increases. So I knew I wouldn't quit anything. I was just worried about my old body, yeah. you know, holding up. I got a lot of miles on it. You know, 50,000 miles is kind of up. And, you know, there's a lot of different s- swimming and different testing and different things. And, you know, so I started training and. And you're still doing your job working the conspiracy stuff. Yeah. Uh, this time or, I was on a task force group. A what's the task, task force group do? Um, we were a task force on the west side of the city, and we worked with um, various west side police departments, and they were all sworn in as federal task force agents. 
So they had the full powers like of a DEA agent, and you could you know do investigations over state lines and everything. And we were hitting a lot of like big marijuana hits, meth hits, cocaine hits. So I was still, yes, doing my full-time job and then have to get ready and train for the selection. Mm-hmm. Any good between on the conspiracy thing, like what's the biggest people you ever rolled up when you were doing the conspiracy gig? We had um, one case, this one group, and um, they were uh, an African-American group. They were had people out of Detroit, Atlanta, and Los Angeles, and in Phoenix. They would get their large amounts of shipments of marijuana from the Phoenix and Tucson area. Now we're talking large amounts. I'm talking they would buy two, three... Um, thousand pounds of marijuana at a time, and we had information from Mexico. Yes, well, they buy it in Phoenix. The dope, the the marijuana came up from Mexico. Okay, you know, of course, you buy it in you know Southwest is a lot cheaper than you bring it out east, and you can sell it for almost double the price. So there's a lot of money involved. And we have an informant. You know, these guys are rich, and they have this huge place in this gated community in Scottsdale, and all these truckers that are driving for them and everything. So it, it's full on. You know, it's a full on enterprise. Full on enterprise. You know, but you you got to be kind of suspect a little bit. And you're like, yeah, this is a little far fetched. You know. Um. So the informant says, okay, they're meeting. Um, they're going to meet their um, source of supply, and they're going to do a deal. And I'm going to be at the house. So like, okay, we set up. Um, we have a general area where we think their nice house is. Yeah, so we got some people set up in that vicinity and they go into this residence in Phoenix and they pull a van in the garage. We're like, okay, this looks good. So the van leaves the garage and the informant says, okay, they picked up. So sure as shit, they found a van and we take it to this gated community in Scottsdale. Well, you got to, you know, get keyed in and buzzed in and everything. And we um, sit on the house and get it identified where they're at and see people coming and going and they follow them out. And sure as shit, they go to a warehouse too. Or there's a semi truck. We're like, oh, it's on and popping now. (laughs) So we get enough for um, a search warrant for the house and the warehouse and hit it and get pretty good large amount of, of marijuana. And during this time, one of the we followed one of the guys and to the airport and you know we're kind of short numbers. We got people all over the place. And I'm by myself following this guy. And it's very hard to do surveillance by yourself mm-hmm. without getting burnt, you know, without them seeing you. And I don't know how I pulled it off, but I did. So this, What are you wearing? Just street clothes. Just street clothes. You Man, know, I did some of those surveillance and counter surveillance and like dressed up and, you know, trying to look like a bum and this and that. Man, I, I, I was horrible at it. I was like the worst, <laughs> like, I was like the worst undercover person ever. I don't know. It's just, and it seems like you would have a similar issue since you're uh, pretty jacked, you know, you just stand out in a crowd. Yes, you know, so you just kind of, you know. Like if you were following me, I'm 100% going to know. <laughs> yes. 100%. Like, there's no, you're not going to sneak around following me. It's not happening. Yeah, and foot surveillance is very hard, you know. So you're you're in a vehicle. You're trying to stay far back as you mm-hmm. can and everything. And somehow I pulled it off. And as the person got out of, 
let they let the person out to go into the terminal. I somehow I got one hand and snapped a photo of him. I don't know how I pulled it off, but I didn't. That happened to be the main guy. Mm. So we end up getting the I get him getting a picture of him, and we didn't know you know who he was at the time or not, and he was flying back to L.A. You know, so we hit it and you know get some people in custody and then get the person identified who dropped him off and she had some prior criminal history. So we knew this case was, you know, bigger and tied into all these states and everything. So I told my partner, I said, hey, we're gonna go visit this lady um, tomorrow mm-hmm. and we're gonna bluff her. And we're gonna say, hey, you know, you know, we got you taking this person, yada, 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 you know, and you're helped in the furtherance of this conspiracy to their drug trafficking organization. You have some criminal history in the past, you know, you know, we're going to potentially look at indicting you and maybe seizing your vehicle. And my partner at the time, she goes, it'll never work. I said, watch. You're just trying to get her to roll. Just get her to roll. I said, watch. So we knock on her door. Um, so, so you're wearing plain clothes. Plain clothes, you got a, like a badge around the neck mm-hmm. and a chain, you know, kind of like TV and this what are you, and that. Are you wear a t-shirt and a pair of jeans? T-shirt, pair of jeans, do yeah. you want to look as unintimidating as possible? Do you want to look intimidating? Like what's your, what's your, like what's your character? What character are you going into? Just kind of, this kind of low-key, intimidating enough where they know you're, you know, federal mm-hmm. law enforcement. Mm-hmm. You know, you're not playing around, but, you know, you're trying to, you also learn you got to build rapport with these people yeah. too. yeah you know, to try to get some common interest. And my partner at the time. Your partner was naysaying this, saying it'll never work? She's like, I don't think this will work, Joe. And she was um, a newer agent. And I said, just watch. I said, watch, Kim. Sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. Mm-hmm. We got like a 50-50 here. Mm-hmm. Let's give it a try. And, and you don't worry that you're going to give away the fact that you're on to them. You know, at this point, you know, we had you know, a significant amount of people in custody. Okay, so you're there. You, they know you're on to them. You, you know, they know we're on to them. At what extent, they don't know. You know, but I tell people, too, you can't make cases sitting behind your deck, desk all the time. <laughs> you got to get out there and shake the bush. <laughs> so she's kind of naysaying me, and um, this person ended up being a topless dancer at one of the gentlemen clubs in Phoenix where – there's a lot of the, the Mexican sources go hang out there, and a lot of the people from out of town come in there to find sources. And this person, this informant, she was known to date a lot of these out-of-town drug dealers, and she would hook them up with the sources of supply. So we go talk to her and, and knock on the door, and you can tell by her face, she's like, oh, shit. <laughs> and we just lay it out, and I said, this is what can happen to you. This is... Okay, I'll cooperate. What do you want to know? Dang. So we started working with Kim her. Kim was wrong. <laughs> Kim was wrong, yes. You know, so, you know, I guess you need to get lucky sometimes, and I got lucky then. Um, so we ended up using her and going back, and they kept coming to town. But, of course, they moved their operation to another spot, and then we were able to – investigate and look at all these other seizures that happened in different states and tie them all together to these people. Mm. You know, interviewing, actually interviewing the truck drivers, got their sources of supply, you know, pulled receipts from hotels and and plane things at different times 
when they were supposed to do these deals and were able to tie everything together. And some of these people, we had never caught them red-handed with drugs, but just with testimony by the informants, putting the things together by pulling receipts, we ended up hammering this group um, and getting them all charged and indicted when a lot of these other groups couldn't do it. And I actually helped my partner get her GS-13, because at DEA, our kind of journeyman level is GS-13, mm-hmm. and you have to do so many things. You know, you have to have you know these complicated cases and or did a wiretap or did some undercover. So I actually helped Kim get her 13, and I was already on the FAST team when they went and did the takedown, but they said just to see these people's faces, like, oh, shit, you got all this on me. Oh, crap. And we used her to do... Um, quite a bit of other good cases too. Did you ever do any undercover work? Yes, I did some. What was that like? Um, And everybody thinks it's intense. Everybody thinks that you need to look like a drug addict to do undercover. Now, kind of the contrary, like at DEA, we're dealing with people who are in to make money. So a lot of these people look like business people. And it's kind of as long as you talk to talk, you know, you're all right. Um, so undercover, I've reversed um, chemicals and equipment to make meth. Um, undercover, I bought methamphetamine in larger amounts. I bought heroin. And then um, there's an individual which a lot of people have heard their name before. They used to be a famous mob hitman, Sammy the Bull Gravano. Mm-hmm. He was out in Phoenix in witness protection, mm-hmm. but still doing bad activities. <laughs> so they actually put me undercover. He actually had this group of kids out there. They were into MMA um, and they were selling ecstasy in steroids and this group would go around and they would beat up, like they would pick up minorities and jump them like five on one. Kind of like a one percenter motorcycle gang thing. Mm-hmm. And they put me in there to buy steroids from these kids. So I ended up buying steroids from these kids and it, later led to Sammy the Bull getting into additional legal problems. Well, where's he at right now? I'm not sure where he's at the moment. Hmm. That's crazy. Uh, when you're doing these undercover ones that you're talking about, are you staying undercover for a long period of time or are you basically going undercover for two hours to go meet these guys, buy some shit, and then roll out? Did you ever do these guys that it seems like they're going undercover for extended periods of time. That's called like a deep cover operation. Got it. Those don't happen that much anymore. Got it. You know, there's a lot of risk involved in that. Yeah. You know, so, you know, there was some, like, some of the pseudo cases where, like, I played a role for, like, months at a time, but a lot of it was done over the phone and mm. stuff. But most of them was like, you know, you're meeting with a guy, you know, you know, for this hour or two, you know, you're in the undercover role, mm-hmm. and then you're moving on to the next thing, you know, and the biggest thing where people think is if, you know, you're undercover and a, a suspect, are you the police? You're supposed to tell them, yes, I am. You don't have to tell them the truth. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's not true. No, that's not true. And when you're interviewing people, you don't have to tell them the truth either. You know, you're interviewing a couple of people and like, hey, like when you're like you and Kim went to talk to that girl, you told her you had all this information. Yes. You know. Or you arrested a couple of people and hey, your buddy's in the next room just roll, spilling his guts on you saying it's your dope and your gun. This no, 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 no. It's, it's his, you know, <laughs> and they think you need to tell the truth in that, too. You know, you can 
in those circumstances, you don't have to necessarily tell the truth. Did you do a lot of that interrogation type stuff? Yes. Did and you I'm, get trained to do that? Did you send you? Did they send you through training, or was it just what you learned over the years? In the academy, you learn the basics of it, and there's different schools like the Reed School and everything. I never went to a formal school. Most of that I got was on-the-job training. Mm-hmm. You know, I got with some you know agents and some local police that were good at it, and just picked up and learned. You know, hey, this seems to work. This doesn't work. You know, so I just, like I said, I, I had kind of a knack at getting people to talk and also, like I said, good with informants. Mm-hmm. All right. So after you got done with that conspiracy thing, what was the next thing you had? The West Side Task Force. And the West Side Task Force, that's when you're working with the, the regular police from Phoenix and you're all working together to try and do good. Do good, yes. You know, and people don't realize that Without the local law enforcement, we can't do our job. You know, the locals, they know the area. They have the local connects and everything. And most of the DEA groups have um, local law enforcement officers sworn in as task force agents in the groups. You know, because we can't do the do the job by ourselves. And it kind of helped me, me working at a local law enforcement agency first, too. I kind of had respect and street cred from a lot of the local officers. And I didn't think I was this big, bad, high, you know, federal agent, and you're just this lowly peon local law enforcement officer. Mm -hmm. You know, I I respected them. Mm -hmm. And so what are you guys doing? You guys going after, like, different levels of drug dealers? Or what makes that West Side Task Force different than just regular DEA? It was um, we focused on the West Side. Okay. In the west, the west area suburbs. And is it is it the fact that you're working with them closely and in interoperability and exchanging information that gives you a better chance of catching bad guys? Yes, and it also bolsters our numbers too. And we actually in this West Side Task Force, we actually worked um, in one of the West Side Police Agency's um, offsite locations for the Glendale Police Department in Arizona. So we're actually, you know, you're with them. Every day, day in, day out. So same thing, you're doing investigations, but you're utilizing the local cops to help you do the investigations. Correct. Is that right? Yes. Okay. So you're doing that, and then I kind of pulled you back in the story a little bit, but you, but then you, you started hearing about the Fast Company and what you could do, what that's going to look like, but you're 39 years old. You got some mileage on, on yes. chassis, <laughs> and so you're trying to get in shape for that. Um, how did you find out you got picked up, or what was the application process like? Well, you know, he had to fill out this, you know, fill out this questionnaire. You know, I've been on the job, you know, this many years, and this is kind of the background of things I did on the job. And you have to get your uh, concurrence from your supervisor, and and then the concurrence from the special agent in charge, whatever division you're in, and you submit it. And if you're qualified, your name is picked to go to selection. So they set a date for selection, and every, they, they give you a list of, you know, hey, these are some of the events you're going to have to do, um, kind of give you outline how to train for them. You know, you have to do our standard DEA PT test, um, which is no great shake. So, you know, you have to do the shooting mm-hmm. um, pistol and long rifle, but you have to score higher. Mm-hmm. Um, ruck marches. Um, with you know, with weight on you, you during a certain time, a distance run, 
you know, on all these different thinking and, you know, kind of thinking on your feet and leadership, different tasks and things. And you actually have to, we use, actually use this company that um, they, before a lot of people in the military go through different special ops selections, Mm -hmm. they have to take this test online, which is kind of like a psychological Mm -hmm. and like an IQ test. And you got to answer these questions and then they can pretty much figure out if a person's gonna make it or not through how you do these things. Well, somebody needs to tell the damn SEAL teams about that because <laughs> we still have an 80% attrition rate after however many years it's been, 60 years or, actually no, it's been freaking 70, 80 years of doing that training and putting people through that training. We still can't figure out who's gonna make it. Well, they and freaking we, quit. You know, and we do too, you know, so, and I think we started with, um, I think there was close to 40 of us in our selection and only 11 made it through to the Where end. Where does the selection take place? Quantico? The first part, yes. The first week it takes part in Quantico all in-house. It's kind of like... Is it a beatdown? Oh, yes. Mm-hmm. It's kind of like we call it like our hell week. And who's running it? Um, is it... Agents from FAST. And FAST, how long has FAST been around for? I believe, was it created after September 11th? Yes, after okay, September 11th. Yes, but you said there was a previous like unit that was snowcap. Yes, that was prior to that. So they took maybe some old snowcap people, brought them back, see if they could help out, something like yes, that. Yes, how to you know get them get the unit organized mm-hmm. and the training and logistics and you know weaponry, you know. But you're going overseas fighting a war, so you're using weapons and weapon systems the average DEA agent doesn't never use in their career. Right. You know, you're using you know. Belt-fed crew serve weapons, uh, oh, you know, man. grenade launchers, um, y- you know, um, handheld mortars, right. um, Carl Gustav rockets, you know, laws, you know, yeah, all kind of yeah. crap, you know. So, you know, you're doing all this stuff. So you, you know, you they really, you know, invest in you. And like, once if you make it through training, you make it through selection, and you get picked up on a fast team you have to at least commit to doing three years mm-hmm. because they're putting all this time and effort and training into you. Um, so what, what made most people quit? How, how long was it? How long was the selection process? The first hell week was like a week and you had tier one events. They were their pass fail. Mm-hmm. And if you fail one event, you're gone. And then we had tier two events where tier one event would be a forced ruck march. Forced ruck march, nine time. miles. Here's the time. Yeah, like, like that. Here's, here's the time. Um, a distance run was like a five mile run. Um, our PT test, um, shooting test, things of that nature. Mm-hmm. Uh, a basic swim qual. Got it. And then the tier two were like this, you know, different other events. And if you failed one tier two, you were put on probation. And then if you failed another one, you could get removed. We also had peer evals throughout too because we had learned uh, life lessons. You know, some people can just fly through all the physical activity things and some people had a lot of military experience, but they can't play well with others. <laughs> so you're living in confined spaces, at time, you know, and you're just living with an asshole. Yeah. And yeah. we didn't have time for that. So you could actually get peered out too. Mm-hmm. So. So are people quitting this selection or are they just not passing the standards? About a little, about half of both. Okay. You know, you know, and when you go through there, they're telling you what you're getting into. 
you know, this is what you're getting into, and this unit is not for everybody. And just because it may not be for you, it doesn't mean that you're a bad agent, that you can't do your normal job, but this is what you're getting into, and it's a whole, it's a total volunteer unit. Mm-hmm. So you get people that are going through slack, and you're just getting your dick knocked into dirt. <laughs> and, you know, and if it was just, you know, you did, you, every day you did like a tier one event, you'd be fine, but you're also getting hazed in between, mm-hmm. you know, and carrying the logs and, and the inflatable boats and, you know, doing CrossFit workouts and, you and know, you're, you're 39 years old. 39 years old. You're not getting much sleep, but they're feeding you well. Kind what was of, the average age of the rest of the class? I would say low, thir- low 30s. Low 30s. Okay. So, you know. Did you have trouble with anything? The water stuff. Uh-huh. I've always. You look like you might be a little bit of a sinker. <laughs> and, I, and I learned that muscle does not float. That's why I say that, man. Yeah, we, we learned that in the SEAL teams. Like, you get these big, jacked guys that are not only big and jacked, also ripped. And that means they don't have a lot of body fat. And, and that, that does, leanness doesn't help either. Oh, yeah, it, leanness doesn't help either. Yeah. You know, so I grew up with a swimming pool, and we had a cottage on the lake in Michigan. So obviously, I would say I was fairly competent in water, but just... And I had to learn in the pool, you have to relax. <laughs> the, the more you get yourself worked out, you get oxygen deprived, and then you're screwed. Yeah. So, you know, for treading water for long periods of time and, you know, swimming in BDUs and boots and everything, you have to stay calm. <laughs> you know, we didn't quite do the 50-meter underwater swim like you got. We did a 25, mm-hmm. you know, in BDUs. And to me, you know, it's like... You know, they kind of tell you to you know, go deep and, you know, and stroke and glide. And, you know, I'm doing all that. And then when you get close to the wall, it's like I'm starting to do the panic swim. I'm screwing myself, yeah, you know, yeah. you know, so. Uh, yeah, relax and glide. That's easier said than done in many cases. Exactly. <laughs> you know, and, and keeping your breathing controlled and everything. You know, so you know, after I did enough to pass with the mm-hmm. swimming. So afterwards, um when I got selected on the fast team, the FBI had a pool over there, so I'd go there a couple times a week and just go into water and just swim mm-hmm. and get better at it. So, so how long was the whole selection process? You know, you, the first week is like the hell week, and then you do a training phase next, and that's usually a couple months, and that's usually run by an ODA Green Beret team, or with us it was gonna be Naval Special Warfare Hmm. with the SEALs. And I was the first group that was done by the SEALs. And sometimes the first part goes and then you go right into your training phase. And... um, you like, mean the first part goes, meaning the, hell the week, first the, the little hell the week, hell week and you then get you a go, bunch of people to quit. Yes, and then you go right into your training phase. But we got to have a break because we were gonna use Navy Special Warfare and not, weren't gonna be ready for a couple months. So we got to go home and heal up and lick your wounds a little bit. You know, I pretty much had a blister in every part of my foot. I lost every toenail on both feet. And at the time, my girlfriend picked me up from the airport after the hell week and she's like, what the hell happened to you? Of course, I was beat to shit. I had to go to the ER room the next day as my foot was infected. You know, I'm trying to tell them what happened. They're looking at me like, I don't, this doesn't sound right. You volunteered for this? You volunteered for this? 
And just because you make it through everything, say the Hell Week, um, still the fast cadre, they sit down and you have to be asked to go on to the second phase of training. Mm-hmm. So I made it through that and got to go home and just lick your wounds for a little bit and go back to work in your regular group. And then we reported um, in early spring. We started selection, I think, February 2009, early spring of that year to Little Creek, Virginia, to do our second phase of training. So we're like, okay, you know, we're told this is your learning phase. This is supposed to be the gentleman's course now. Mm. Roger, <laughs> Roger that. So, you know, the SEALs had never had outside people there either. So we show up and some of the cadre and some of the people from team two and 10, hey, um, we, we got a bunch of old BDUs for you guys. And when are you guys getting your badges and this and that? They'd have no clue. I'm like, well, I had my badge for 12 years. And, you know, we pretty much got a lot of high-speed stuff. So we're staying at the Navy Inn there in Little Creek. Uh-huh. And so we report zero dark 30 the first day and for formation of PT. And we go straight to the ocean. Good times, team two. In the ocean, <laughs> out of the ocean, you know, sugar cookies, the whole night. I'm like. Oh, really? I'm like, um. I thought this was supposed to be a gentleman course. <laughs> and they were like, we were told to treat you guys like buds. I'm like, oh, who the hell told you that? Damn. You know, so, you know, got, you know, got hammered and, but, you know, they kind of, you know, slacked off, you know, for a while. And, you know, he had different things, distance runs and stuff. So we spent time training there. And then we bumped over to Fort Chaffee, Arkansas to do the land warfare part mm-hmm. of that. And, you know, it was it was it was very very good training to say the least. And it was funny before we went over there, and we found out the seals were going to do our second phase. And other buddy who was very competent, um, but he was struggling the water a little bit. I called him and I was like, "Did you hear who doing our second phase?" <laughs> he goes, "Yeah, the seals." I go, "Oh sh- <laughs> shit." <laughs> And then you you ended up coming out to the West Coast to do some training too, because you yes later on that's after I got selected on the fast team. Okay, so when so when did you actually get selected? October of two thousand nine. Okay, and just because you make it through all the training it doesn't mean you're going to be picked up on the fast team. Because as the openings occur, they you can get cherry picked from the list. Got it. Got it. So you was there anything else uh, about the the initial training course when you were at Team Two? You went to Fort Chaffee. You go do training out there. Are you training with a task unit? Or are they just putting you through training as your own entity? That one, it wasn't like they were as our own entity. Oh, really? So okay. you had you know people from Trade It there, yep. and actually, um, oh, a senior chief, um, Tony Gale, was assigned to us. <laughs> right on. You know yeah. him? Oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> Tony, he's he's such a beast. So he's like uh, uh, smaller than me. He's shorter than me. He looks like uh, how do I describe this? He doesn't look like he's like a super beast, but he's faster than me, and he could bench press more than me. So he was like better than me at everything, and no one would ever, you know suspect that and you he, know? he can go through the obstacle course pretty good oh, too. he's freaking awesome he's and, freaking awesome and then guy, we man. had a um, stud. master chief hitchcock too that oh yeah helped yeah. out right on right on yeah i know both those guys with things and so yeah it was um it, it was it was intense and of course we would do different events you know with the team guys and 
if we did a distance run, of course, they put their distance run stud out there. Oh, yeah. Or if we did a CrossFit workout, they put, you know, their best CrossFitter <laughs> out there, out there, you know. You know, so they kind of cherry-picked, you know, people, which, you know, I don't blame them, you know, when you show up there. Okay, so today we're doing a distance run. You couldn't wear any watch, no GPS, and we're just going to run. Oh. And so you guys get did get it hooked up with a little bit of extra bonus program. Yeah, and it wouldn't tell you know how long we're running for. Yeah. You know, I've always been a bigger guy, and I cut weight for that because I knew we'd doing all the endurance stuff. So I was sitting around 215, 220. But we had some guys on our team that were like in the 160s. You know, I can run a couple six-minute miles, but I can't run six-minute miles for 10 minutes. Mm -hmm. And we had some of these little rabbits. They could do that. Not <laughs> not me. You know, I blow through a CrossFit workout, no problem. Yeah. But, yeah. you know, so we'd go on these distance runs, and we wouldn't, you wouldn't know how long you were going for when you were done. It's like, you know, just do your best, you know. Okay, what's the time hack here? Well, we're not telling you. You can't have a watch on, so you don't even know how fast you're going anyways. Yeah, well, that they were treating you like bud students because in buds you don't have a watch, and it's a total pain in the ass because you never know what you're doing. The only thing you can do is just go as hard as you can because that's the best thing you can do, you know? In selection, what I, I didn't try to look too far in advance. Mm -hmm. I just took each activity for what it was. You know, when you're being beat down and on our team day, the last day of – um, hell, the kind of hell week, I was just like, okay, Joe, just take another step. Mm -hmm. Just worry about one more step, and then we'll worry about the rest later. I didn't try to overwhelm myself. Mm -hmm. You know, and I read some things before, you know, about different selections and things, and that's one of the things they said, don't overwhelm yourself. Just worry about one thing at a time. And you make it through that, well, you worry about the next thing then. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So you get done. So you, did you do anything besides Chaffee? Um, besides land warfare with those guys? We went to Chaffee and then back to the creek. Mm -hmm. And then you would culminate, you know, you're doing FTXs um, throughout. And then it culminates with a final FTX where you got to hit a target over there. Right on. And you go in, you know, with Sims and everything. Mm -hmm. And they didn't have the 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 miles gear like we had at Nylon there, mm -hmm. and you know you do a hit, and um, the group I was in, we had to fast rope on top of this um, building at night, and it could be tricky. And we we're using our DEA pilots, and I hope they can hold a hover good, because there was always a couple <laughs> yeah. times when guys um, almost were going down the rope, and, <laughs> and the rope's not over the building, and you know I've always been a heavy guy. If I'm full kid, or I was carrying my you know, I'm not stopping I'm myself stop. on that rope. That was me too. I'm not, when I'm going, I'm going. That rope better be in the right spot because I'm going to be at the bottom of it in about two seconds and that's that. It is funny when we were doing our fast rope training um, at Little Creek and the towers and everything. You know, you start with the tower at first and you do your rappelling and everything. And, you know, okay, just take your time, sit down, you know, on the helicopter, you know, and then grab the rope and then slowly spin yourself. Just take your time. Mm. So when we go out in the helicopters and first time to real, they're like, go, 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 hurry up, go, go, go. <laughs> what happened to this take your time thing? <laughs> we're like, F it, I guess we're doing it live, you know? <laughs> uh, so you get done with that and you said that's when you actually got selected or chosen to go to a fast, what do you call it, a fast company? Is that fast right? team. Fast team. So you, you actually get selected to go to a fast team and that's in the fall of 2009. Correct, October 2009. And when you get there, are you going, do you know you're going on a deployment at a certain time? 
Well, we knew what team you were going to. We had um, five teams at the time, uh, Alpha through Echo, and each team is made up of one supervisor, eight agents, and one intel analyst. So I knew what team I was going on. Then once we got there, they um, would tell you, okay, we always had a team in Afghanistan all the time. Mm -hmm. And each deployment lasted 120 days, give or take some days. Mm -hmm. So you knew when you were going up. So um, once I got there, I was assigned to Delta team, which was made up of some senior agents and with some of the newer individuals. And um, we were set to go to do the our first deployment in Afghanistan was going to be the spring summer tour of 2010. And a lot of people don't know in Afghanistan there's a fighting season over there. Mm -hmm. You know, it gets bad weather there. Um, it gets winter and stuff like that. So in the spring summer, that's when all the fighting's going on, and that's when they're harvesting the opium poppy to manufacture the heroin. So that's kind of your busy time. So you get settled in and you do start doing your pre-deployment workup, kind of like, you know, with the military. And then we had a group come in. You may be familiar with them. Um, they're made, uh, made up of ex-Navy Special Warfare guys mm -hmm. and actually some dev group guys called... Um, Shoot, 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 shoot. The David Group. Okay. Right on. And um, they actually, we actually used um, your guys' system and developmental groups of combat clearing. Okay. So they actually taught us in that, and then that's when we find out uh, before deployment, um, you guys are going to Camp Billy Macon in Nyland, California, and you're doing <laughs> land warfare <laughs> with... Um, a West Coast SEAL team. Right on, right on. You know, so, you know. We so what, what, when was that? Do you remember when that was? E yes. Um, Start on taxis, I want to say April, May-ish of, of 2010. Yeah. Um, so, a, yeah, I was definitely still there. And SQT, you weren't there when we first got there. Yeah. You showed up at the end. Um, yeah, I show up for the FTXs. Yeah, that's what I would do. And um, the SQT was going through there at the time. And um, so it was a full house there. Mm -hmm. How was that training? It was intense. You know, it was, you know, <laughs> three weeks, day and night of, you know, getting, you know, kicked in the balls, you know. And, you know, this is what I was told in the SEAL pre-deployment workup. That's usually the hardest um, pre-deployment block or the toughest. Yeah, the, the land warfare, especially at that time, was no joke. Yeah. <clears throat> you know, so there was a lot of buddy carrying, you yes, know, was. for extreme distances, you know, yeah. and, you know, and, you know, different things. But I, I tell you, you got to learn how to do, um, you know, land warfare drills very effectively. You got to get to know how to use your equipment, your night vision, your lasers um, very well. You came out of there well-prepared, like, you know, knowing that something happens in combat, you know, but you, you know, you ran out there, you know, you're training there for worst case scenario. Yep. yep. And so it was, yeah, good. that was always my goal was that, and you know, the goal was as crazy as a goal. This may seem like the goal was, Oh, okay. Um, 
I want to make sure that these guys, if they get into a gunfight, it's they're going to be. It's going to seem easy compared to what they've been through in training. And I had countless guys come back to me and say, "Hey, this is the situation we were in. Here's the gunfight we got in. Here's the contact we got in. Here's the scenario we were in." And they were able to handle it exquisitely because the training, the land warfare training that they'd been through, and the urban training that they'd been through was so hard that the actual combat seemed easy. Now, obviously, can you simulate someone actually getting wounded or actually getting killed? No, you can't. But as far as, especially from a leadership perspective, understanding how to manage all those elements on the battlefield, and then the young shooters being thinking shooters and knowing how to execute, knowing how to operate, knowing how to move themselves, it's just an awesome package that that you have. You have this just unified team when they get done with those with those training cycles. So and it was nice because in Nyland, you know, they didn't, you know, they broke us up and just intermixed us with the team. Yep. You know, so they put a couple of, you know, with this, you know, fire team, that fire team. Mm-hmm. So they kind of mixed you in. So it was, it was, it was very, very good training. A lot of the, the train and stuff there in Nyland was good because it's very similar to Afghanistan yep. terrain too. Yep. I was get we were trying, we had some, some other, military entities trying to get control of that training site for us. And I remember I put together a brief for my leadership in the chain of command, my most senior leadership in the chain of command. And what I did was I took pictures of Nyland and pictures of Afghanistan, of like SEALs patrolling in Nyland and SEALs patrolling in Afghanistan. And I put together like five or six of those pictures side by side in a, in a slideshow. And I said, this is the terrain we're fighting in and this is the terrain we're training in. We can't do any better than this right here and we need to maintain control of this and so yeah it's a it's it's very it's almost uncanny how similar those two environments can look and i didn't realize when we were there he had two army rangers you know doing an exchange program to help teach the land warfare there yep yep um you know those those rangers that we would bring out they're just outstanding guys because we as seals always want to have an open mind and make sure that we are understanding the tactics, the techniques, the procedures of other units, what do they know better than us? What can they teach us? What can we learn from them? And that's one of the ways that we've always done that is taking individuals from other units and bringing them to our units, especially to our instructor cadre, so that we can learn more and try and get better. And those those rangers that work with us were just outstanding guys. And I say, and I feel you guys do an outstanding job of your guys' training, um, you know, like you said, you know, knowing that, hey, there's always, you know, there's more than one way to skin a cat. Yep. And yep. let's see what other people are doing. You know, you, you put things in your toolbox and, hey, I might use this again. Or, hey, I may never use that again. But you have a lot of tools in that toolbox. Yeah, indeed. So you end up going on deployment to Afghanistan, your first deployment. How's that? It's um, intense. Every time we go to Afghanistan, things are a little different. And at the time, we were doing a lot of work with the Army ODAs, the Green Berets there. Um, and at this particular time, we were operating in Panjaway area. Mm-hmm. You know, the, the Panjaway, um, Kandar area, is kind of, that area is kind of the birthplace of the Taliban, where there's a lot of insurgent activity, but also a lot of heroin production going on there also. So they broke us up into like two Zs and three Zs and put us with different units. And uh, a good partner of mine, a friend of mine, Travis Brooks and myself, we were assigned with um, first special forces group over there 
ODA 1231. And um, they were stationed in Camp Simmons, just a little little base outside of Kandar Airfield, which is like our main base was at Kandar Airfield in Afghanistan. We were living with the, um, the ODA, the first group guys. You know, and we would bring, you know, like I said earlier, our expertise on investigations. And we had our partner force over there, which we were mentoring. And we were living over there with the Green Berets and using um, our intel information, you know, from the DEA and also using the military information. And we would try to pair that information, find out where the... Um, bigger drug labs were, mm-hmm. where they were selling um, the chemicals and equipment to manufacture heroin. And we, we would not go after as the opium farmers, the poppy farmers. Got it. Because a lot of times they were made to grow the opium. Mm-hmm. You know, the Taliban came in and they had the biggest stick at the time. Either, you know, you're growing this poppy for us or you're getting killed. Mm-hmm. You know, so we knew they weren't reaping the benefits. So we would try to find, you know, the people who were getting the money from this. And uh, it's called a narco-terrorism nexus. And um, so we would hit these bigger locations and take people off the battlefield and train the Afghans how to process and how to conduct these, you know, investigations. And we were, um, what the the Green Berets do at the time, they were doing movements to contact which for the non-military you know, people, and I didn't know at the time because I wasn't in the military before, you know, you basically go in a hot air and you pick a fight mm-hmm. and you assess, assess the enemy, how strong they are. And you stay there for a couple of days. And then a lot of times conventional forces are brought in and we were hitting areas where a lot of drug activity was going on. And, and of course in Panjaway at the time, they had a lot of implanted IEDs. Yeah. yeah, this is 2010. Yes. So IED threat is just full on at this time. Especially in that area, yeah. you know, and that's when they started switching over to like the homemade explosive, the HME, where the metal detector is not picking this stuff up. You know, and we had dogs and stuff um, with the bomb guys and gals, but sometimes they couldn't smell it. And a lot of times these IEDs are hidden so well, you can't see where they're at. And especially at night under nods, you know, in every mission, people were getting, you know, injured with IEDs. You know, that was, you know, in a straight up fight, most often than not, they couldn't hang with us. You know, so they you know, they used their weapon, the IED, and, you know, to, to inflict terror on us. And, um, you know, it's like, okay, um, this is going to be my last step. I have my legs. You know, you're trying to do everything to try to, you know, mitigate it, but, you know, you still never, never know. So, you know, we're doing these movements to contact and, you know, we're most often than not hitting these labs behind enemy lab lines and that's their money. They're fighting like hell to keep it, mm-hmm. you know. So I think that first year, I think I did, we did about 11 missions or so. Mm-hmm. And it was only two times I didn't have to fire my gun. And I carried a, um, a belt-fed weapon at the time. I show up to FASC. Um, of course, the listeners can't see. I'm a decent-sized guy. What are you walking around at, at that time, weight-wise? Um, 230-ish. Okay. So they're giving you a, a belt-fed weapon. Yes. Right? You're like, you're a big guy. Yeah. You carry that. I've said, I'm old, and it's still heavy. You know? <laughs> Did you carry a Mark 48 or Mark 46? Actually, a Mark 43. Oh, damn. Okay. 
you know, old school yeah. M60 Echo yeah. 4. That's freaking crazy. You know, and that was made, you know, for you guys, you yeah. know. You know, um, we had Mark 48s, but I'm a left-handed rifle shooter. I'm, I was all jacked up. I was very left-eye dominant, and I shot a pistol right-handed. In that Mark 48, you would eat all the yeah. brass and link. Oof. The Mark 43 was a little better. You, I put, like, a broomstick handle on the front, and I moved it way back. <laughs> and I could stand stand up, and I tuck my right elbow real far in, and so I wouldn't catch as much link and brass, you know. The cyclic rate of fire on that Mark 43 is not quite as fast mm-hmm. as the 48, but as you know, it's it's a pretty reliable, yeah. it's, a, it's a reliable weapon, you know? So I carry that damn thing every mission, you know? And it's nice to have because it does a lot of damage, but as an automatic gunner, the enemy knows that, so you're a target too. 100%. You know, and tracers work both ways. <laughs> yes, they do. <laughs> And luckily at night, I got a hold of some of the IR tracers, okay. which you can only see under nods. And usually the enemy did not, well, for the most part, and there, they did not um, have night vision capabilities. So, yeah, it was, um, you had to, you fire and you move your position a little bit and you fire and move your position a little bit. And, you know, it's not like TV, you know, that you had a box of 100 rounds on that. <laughs> gun and it doesn't last for five minutes <laughs> you know if you're hammering that trigger down it it goes pretty quick so you got to learn to conserve your ammo and spread load ammo with other people too were you going out with so you're going out with an oda team at this time yes and you also would have afghan partners with you yes so these are pretty big elements that you were going out in yes and the oda had their um partner force too oh so wait so you guys had your own partner force yes Wow, like a DEA, an Afghan DEA? Yes, it's the, oh, wow. the National Interdiction Unit. Okay. Um, the Afghans, they were more their investigators, and then the Green Berets, or whatever group, they had their own group too. Right. Which the um, Green Berets like to use the Afghan commandos. That was kind of like their special ops unit. You know, but to be quite honest with you, even like we were working with the best and brightest, it was like herding cats. Oh, for sure. Yeah. You know, it's like, okay, you know, what's, you know, you couldn't do these advanced like um, wedge and echelon movement. It was like single file. No, just get in line and we get, hope you can stay in line. Get for in line a bit. and please stay in line and stay behind <laughs> the bomb people and this and that. Uh, you know, don't walk on like the path is look like people walk the most. Don't go over the footbridges because that's where we're going to place the IEDs. And within 10 minutes on the ground, they're everywhere. I'm like, oh, Jesus, they're going to get me blown up. Mm. Yeah. How big would these elements be? So you got the ODA team, the commandos, your guys, and then the, the Afghan DEA, whatever you call them. Yes. What are you talking like? You got like 50 people, Yeah, give something it, like that? It depends how big the operation is. You know, a Green Beret ODA team, you got like 12 individuals, mm-hmm. and their partner force probably would be around 30, you know, and fast, because um, we were like, twosies and threesies have a two to four fast agents and we would bring our partner force at this particular time like we could cherry pick people Mm -hmm. that were the better um, fighters and um, sometimes two to four we would take out and to be honest like i said we worked the best and brightest (sighs) not a high percentage of them were good fighters Mm -hmm. and a lot of times they weren't in great shape so we're kind of limited what you can do, how long of an infill and exfill you can do, and how complicated a plan right. 
you could do. So, you know, it kind of hamstringed us a little bit. You know, but we went out there and got the job done. You know, when we were really hitting them hard, you know, they call it second and third order effects, you could see they were having trouble getting some more of the better munitions and stuff. Um, when we were like just, you know, putting a smackdown on them. And um, halfway through that first, oh, near the end of that first tour, we had uh, first group was leaving, and then um, a group from third group came in, ODA um, 3116. They came in, and we did a couple missions with them. And I know you're probably familiar with this, and some of the listeners is, you know, that the Afghans, they use these ICOM radios to talk with each other. Mm-hmm. You know, we intercept these things. You know, a lot of times they're just talking shit on these damn things. You know, we're killing them, you know, they're dying. No, we found your ID and we're blowing it up, you know. That's what you just heard. And, you know, so we're getting at the end of our tour and we're going to hit this spot um, called um, Hazi Madad in Afghanistan. And there was a little combat outpost out there which I think the 101st Airborne was out there, and they had a Taliban hospital in the area. Of course, they were growing a lot of marijuana and poppy seed out there, and but they also had several dishkas in the area. The enemy did, and that's the old like Russian anti-aircraft mm-hmm. weaponry. 51. And they would harass the coalition forces, uh, their air. So... You know, we had several tasks in this mission, you know, to find drug, you know, to eradicate some of the drug activity going on and also find these dishkas. So the Rangers went in there before us, and they got in a pretty good dust-up and tick. Tick stands for troops in contact, and they lost a couple Rangers. So we were going in a couple days after, and you're doing your uh, pre-mission briefing, and, you know, we're going to get inserted with... You know, three CH-47, four CH-47 helicopters, and there's a high probability we're going to lose a helicopter on infill with the dishkas. And, you know, and you're sitting there the night before, oh, shit, I hope it's not me. You know, you're like in a coffin up there, you know, even most time when we flew with the the Green Berets, they used to like to use the Night Stalkers, the 160th, and we would always infill and exfill with a Spectre gunship overhead. You know, but still, that's not any guarantees. Nope. And so you said the night before, like, I hope it's not me. You know, I hope it's not our helicopter to get shot down. So we plan this up and we infill. We usually like to go in at night to use the t- our, our advantage with our technology with our night vision and laters, lasers. Because I stated earlier, the enemy usually doesn't have that. So we like to go in at night. Um, Get a foothold the best we can, and then when it's light, search. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, exfil the next day or depending on how long the mission's going to last, you know, a day or two or whatnot. So we fly in, and we take a little incoming fire, but all four birds make it. So we been, begin to sweep through and get a foothold. And then for individuals who are listening that, were you know, have been over there, Usually, they'll try to hit or probe you, the enemy over there, after first after morning prayer. Mm-hmm. And then usually, they do their first hit um, and try to feel you out. So 
we get in a couple little skirmishes, um, see him plant some IEDs, and, you know, we're okay. We're moving through, and we didn't find where we were at. We didn't find the discos. We were finding some marijuana fields and this and that. Throughout the day, they're talking. They're like, um, we need to find a good place to set up our PKM machine guns, meaning the enemy. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we blew up an IED and like I said, you know, oh, we are killing them. You know, we're, you know, the Americans are screaming. And so, you know, they're, you know, setting up their PKMs. They're like, okay, you're just, whatever, you're bullshitting, whatever. Screw you. So this is in August and it's hot as hell. And we didn't have any close air supports at the time was they got called over to some other units that were, having some contact so we had a predator overhead but the predators wings iced over and had to land you know this is you know 115 degrees you know under 10 degrees mm-hmm. but i you know you, they're flying up higher and right. you know, i don't know all the specifics and stuff so you know we're in sporadic skirmishes so we were under fire so they're like um we're not going to send air to pick you up because the LZ is pretty, going to be pretty hot. So you're going to have to make it, we're going to have to try to make it to this combat outpost over there, which was probably a couple clicks away at the time. So we move out and we stop this little like village area and we get set up to make our final push. And it was just the villagers there just had a, it just we had a, it had a funny sense mm-hmm. like a spider something's not right you know you know we get in there where are your ids we do not know where they are okay so okay you're going to go out in front of us and and you're going to take us through you know and you get to a spot i will not go any further you must kill me oh i thought you don't know where the ids were you know so we found a couple ids and blew them up and so we're determination is made we're going to make it to the combat outpost so at this time we're probably about hmm, click and a half away or so so we're moving through this is daylight and we're in a single file and one of our guys sees some movements in this little hut above us and he's like tells one of the green braids hey um i think i saw some movement so he glasses it with his um scope and doesn't see anything so we're moving out, and I'm next to like a pony wall, like a probably a couple foot pony wall to my right of me. And I'll tell you one thing: those old mud buildings, like when you're over there, those mud huts, you can explain it to people, but unless you're over there, you can't believe people still live like this. But those st- those things do a hell of a job of stopping bullets and stuff. <laughs> so we're going through, and then sure as shit. They were looking for a place to set up the P camps. We got caught in a near ambush. So I got bullets going over my head, coming to the side of me, and people are calling off. We got four people hit right off the bat when the ambush opened. One being the ODA team sergeant, and he's like, I got a femoral bleed. And we're like, oh, shit. So um, I'm rocking my 43. And I usually carry about 400 rounds of ammo on me. And we had spread loaded some more. And so, you know, I'm trying to pick up like puffs of smoke where I think enemy fire is coming from. 
but I'm also trying to conserve some of my ammo too because if we start getting overrun, I want to have some. But I always carried a pistol with me too and at least one frag grenade because if I could help, I wasn't, you know, I'm going to fight to then. I'm not, I don't want to be taken alive. And so I'm rocking through ammo and being the near ambush, you know, people are throwing hand grenades. It was that close, you know, firing law rockets. And I asked one of um, our Afghan counterparts who spoke English and the um, ODA counterparts, they carried the full length um, 240 Bravos. Sure. So it's the same round that the Mark 43 would fire. So I'm like, go get me some ammo. So he runs out and brings me back a little link of ammo, about 25 rounds. <laughs> I was like, what am I gonna do with this? So I just link it on one of my belts and I said, okay. And um, so we're, we're fighting and we finally get some close air support. We get a F-16 from the UAE, but they won't fire. And you know, we got people hit and we got medevac coming in. And I tell you, those medevac pilots have balls of steel. When they come, when they started coming in, RPGs were shooting up all around them. They landed those birds and got our most severely wounded people out of there, and um, you know, back to you know higher care. You know, so we finally get some close air support to suppress it a little bit. The um, 101st hears all this activity going out, so they bring some of their gun trucks but they can't get too close to us. So we're like, okay, we gotta make, you know, we're getting a little break. So like, okay, we gotta make it to this combat outpost. So we did um, our vote, our version of the Mogadisha mile there, <laughs> where, you know, you're running and shooting <laughs> and you're not caring about the IEDs at this time. We had to cross open field. And I guess, you know, you're, you're up, you see me, I'm down. You know, I guess if I step on some shit, <laughs> I guess I'm gonna blow up. And, you know, they get their gun trucks out there and they start shooting, getting some press of fire. And we ended up getting to the combat outposts. And of course we look, all look like soup sandwiches. You know, when I'm done, it was like, you guys are out there? He goes, yeah. And I learned in a combat, you know, we, we got stationed, you know, set there and, you know, got some rest and yeah, you know, we're gonna go to the Chaha and get some food. And that's when I learned most of the bases we were staying at did unlimited food. <laughs> And that's when I learned the combat outposts, yeah, yeah. there's limited rations. Yeah. <laughs> you know, you only get, to, you know, what's there, a little serving, you know. So, um, grace of God, everybody ended up surviving. You know, we had some some injuries, but we ended up surviving. So that concluded my tour. And I tell you what, I had a bad, you know, I thought it was going to end that day. Because when you come close to running ammo, you're like, oh, shit. You know, what the hell am I going to do? You know, so it was... It was quite an experience. So we kind of went out with, went out in a bang that first tour. Yeah. So so yeah, you definitely seem to end that deployment with a bang. When you when you got done with that deployment, as you looked back at it, what were some of the takeaways that you got from your experiences there? Like anything I've done in life, okay, every, every mission I would take it for each mission. It's like okay, these are the things I did right in the mission. These are things I want to do the same again. And these are the things I did wrong and I never want to do again. So each thing, I, you know, I looked at myself critically. Mm -hmm. uh, I've always been probably my own worst critic. These, you know, I, I don't want to do that ever again, you know, and this is what I want to do. And you can probably relate, and some of our listeners probably, the more you're in that environment, 
you never get 100% used to it, but you get calmer during it. I remember my very first operation, it's old dark 30, you know, with the Green Berets that year, and lucky we didn't get any ticks or anything, is I remember landing in the middle of the night, in the middle of nowhere, and I guess I said, I guess this shit's for real now. <laughs> and I'm just trying to make sure I don't lose my element and night, you know, night vision is, you know, it's not the easiest to see, you know, uh, you know, and we had some pretty decent night vision. It's like, please, please, Lord, let me keep up with the, the people in my group and not get lost out here by myself. So, you know, and I told, I was talking to my fellow, some fellow agents back in Arizona when I got back and I was telling them stories, you know, this is what we're doing, you know. You're like, oh, you're bullshitting. There's no way you did that shit. And I'm just like, oh, yeah, we did. Mm-hmm. You know, it's common. You know, everything kind of fell into place where I don't know if it ever will happen again. You're at war with a country that has a drug nexus. Right. You know, so as I did things as a DA agent, I never thought in a million years I'd be doing. And, you know, people would ask me, were you scared or nervous? I said, oh, yeah, hell yeah, I was. <laughs> You know, I said, but you still had a job to do. You know, there's nothing, you know, scarier feeling. You're going to land and you're, you're giving, you know, you know, five minutes, two minutes, and you hear the door gunners open up. You, just, you know you're going into a hot LZ. You know, you had to unass this bird, you know, start putting some fire down. But as I explained it to it, it's like at the amusement park. You're riding the biggest, baddest roller coaster. You're scared and nervous. And then when you get done, it's like, Okay, when we going back again? <laughs> you know, I, I guess I kind of got that warped sense. You know, I've always been kind of an adrenaline junkie, but you know, it's like, ah, are you, are you nuts? I, I don't know if I'm nuts, but you know, I tend to. I've always, even in football, tend to excel when the pressure was on. Mm-hmm. You know, some people fold under pressure. Some people can handle it well. Luckily for me, I always had a knack of being able to still function pretty effectively under stress. When you got home from that deployment, you said you went back to Arizona. Do you? Oh, no, back to um, Quantico. At okay, time. so you got back to Quantico. Yes. As, so is that where you're actually living now, is in Quantico, since you're with the FAST team? Well, I'm retired now, but when I was on the FAST team, yes, I was living in the Quantico area. I was living actually in Fredericksburg, Virginia. Okay, so you get back from that deployment. No one can believe what you did. You can barely believe what you did. I'm just lucky to make it out there with my life, you know, and have two legs still, you know. Uh, and then what's next? You get it. You get to decompress. Um, you know, you get to spend time with your family. You know, you've been gone a while. Um, they send the, the psychologists in and they kind of debrief you and um, see if you have any issues or problems and you just get to take it easy for a while and just spend time with your family and just relax and recuperate. And how long is that decompression time? You know, usually a month or so. Nice. You know, so then, you know, we were scheduled to do our next tour in Afghanistan. It was gonna be the late, early winter tour of 2011. And the meantime, we started operating in the Western Hemisphere also. Hmm. And we had a team out there, Echo Team, which their primary thing was to Western Hemisphere, and they were giving us language training in Spanish and everything. And um, they were operating in Honduras. Real shithole, too. 
Um, Roatan's real nice, so the you know the scuba diving destination and stuff. But the rest of the country is a disaster. A lot of a lot a lot of violence there. So, Echo Team's going there, and they're doing which is called these air tracks of interest. And we were working in conjunction with Joyce Joint Task Force Bravo over there out of Sotocano. And what we're looking for is these small like planes, these Cessnas and different things coming from source countries, you know, like cocaine, Peru, and stuff like that, loaded with cocaine, you know, multiple hundred kilos of coke at a time. And, the, you know, they would fly in and land in these uh, remote landing strips. And their so-called remote land was like a road or just like a clearing. <laughs> and they would come in there at night with no, n- no night vision and no um, runway lights. And just have like things lit up and land and, you know, try to <laughs> safely land the plane. But the drug dealers didn't really, as long as the, 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 the cocaine was okay, they didn't care if the plane got destroyed. <laughs> so we were, we, we were sent to, um, they needed volunteers. So me and another guy from my team volunteered to go and help them out. So we go and we're in Sotocano. We're doing training with, our partner force there, um, getting up to speed and our tactics, how to take down a plane, land and take down a plane, and all that jazz, and working with Joint Task Force Bravo. And um, right before we got there, we were doing some training, so another team went there. They had one of these air tracks come in, and they launched on it and actually got in a pretty good firefight, and they actually were shooting RPGs at... The, you know, the military aircraft, the 47s that were bringing them in. Jeez. And the, the J- Joint Task Force Bravo guys were like, whoa, whoa, time, time out. You know, we're just supposed to provide you guys a minor transportation role. We don't really want to be in the combat here. So when we got there, they made a pretty good seizure and killed some, you know, decent amount of enemy. And um, so we get there. So they're like, and like, well, okay, we have to have so many hours of training and, you know, we have to practice this and that, and so we're practicing and doing all that, you know, waiting to go. And then DEA, we bring some of our air, our air wing assets there, but we just have smaller vehicles, I mean, smaller aircraft, like kind of like a super Blackhawk. You can't fit a bunch of people in there, and we were, you know, you're doing assault, you want like a CH-47 or something. So um, they're making every excuse in the world not to fly us. And was this for a specific target that you were going after? Um, or was it just in general they were making excuses not to fly you if a hit happened to come up? In general. Okay. Because they knew that it was going to be gunplay. And um, one of our Honduran partner forces got shot during that first operation. They had to medevac him out. And they're like, if we sent you guys down there and if somebody gets hurt, we are not flying into a hot LZ to get you. So there's a lot of lot of things. So we had two DE aircraft there. So we had a couple good air tracks that came up. So the first one we launch just with our DEA birds. And the amount of fuel they carry is not that great. So you can't be up that long. And it takes a while for us to get on these these um, these bogey birds and get tracking them. Um, so we launched and we had. Um, in each one of these helicopter, two DEA pilots. We had two fast team guys and two 
Honduran partner forces and these birds. And each one of these birds, we had a full-size 240 Bravo on there and stuff. But with that limited people, you're not going to land and fight a force. So at best, we hope to see where they land and, hey, if we got harassed, and maybe, you know, you could defend yourself and put some fire down and at least disable the aircraft. So we launch twice, and we get on both tracks. But before they landed, we had to, we were running, uh, low, in, running low on fuel, so we had to get back. So we're there, and we're staying out at Puerto Castillo, near the Puerto Castillo area. There's a base out there. That's where we're launching from. So they had, it was a pretty big media event. So they all knew we were the, excuse me, they all knew we were there. So one of the local drug dealers, he knows we're coming, so he leaves the country. So one of his people that works for him, one of his lieutenants is there. So he concocts this harebrained scheme. He's going to get DEA out of there. DEA, we're going to get them out of there so my boss can come back. So we're staying in this hotel. So wait, so one of the local drug dealers says to himself, I'm going to get the DA to leave so, yes. that, the big, so that the big so boss man can come back. The, the big boss man, Al Hefe, can come back. Got it. So we're staying in this hotel, and there's off the water there, and um, there's another hotel there, the Christopher Columbus, where a lot of the military guys are staying, and they had this little airstrip there. So a lot of those fast guys would get in the morning and do PT, and we'd run in the morning. So this guy's scheme was they knew a kind of our schedule that they were going to, when we got run in the morning, they're going to go and drive up and shoot a couple of us down. So they're going to kill a couple of DEA agents and DEA's just going to leave. And, and wait, you got wind of this? Or this is just what their plan is you found out after the fact? We end up getting wind of it because one of the partner force guys we were working from recognized a guy in town and he said this guy in town got recruited to help kill a couple of us. So he reports back, he reports this to his buddy, and they come to us, and the two people they're going to kill in the morning is the big guy, which is me, <laughs> and then another guy on our team, Dave Clawson, the guy with the funny shorts, because he has these like, colorful, long, goofy shorts he would wear to run, and they're just going to pull up alongside of us and machine gun us down. So we get wind of this, and then they get us the hell out of there, back to Soto Cano, and uh, send us back to the States. Um, what about the other DEA agents? Um, they were there like another week, and they'd be left. It was, just, there was, it was at the end of when we were going to leave anyways. Yeah. And plus, it's high risk, low reward. High risk, low reward. JTF Bravo is not flying us, so it's, it, was just a, it was just a mess. We later went back there and had full support and ended up doing some good with some of some my other teams. How'd you feel when you were trying to get out of there, walking from the freaking hotel to the car to the airplane <laughs> to get you out of there? I tell you what, you know, we're staying in this hotel, um, Casa Alemane, um, House of German, um, by the water there. And, you know, we got I got a first floor room, and it's a decent-sized room. So I'm like, we had to stay one night there. So I'm like barricading my door. I got my Mark 43 set up, <laughs> ready to go. My, you know, my car being ready to go. I'm like, okay, Lord, get me through this night. I said, if they're gonna get me, they're gonna have to, they're gonna have to work to get me, you know. 
So it was. <laughs> did were you able to sleep or just stay awake all night? Finger uh, on the trigger. I, 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 didn't, I didn't sleep. You know, I had you know I had the you know the belt you know down the feet tray cover uh, shut. You know, uh, you know the the weapon cocked back with the safety on. You know, ready ready to go. You know, so they're gonna you know I'm gonna respond with a burst of gunfire. They try to get through here. You know, so it was like you know you know I, I survive Afghanistan and then. I'm gonna get um, I'm gonna get hit in Honduras, you know. So I'm coming coming home. I'm like, oh God, Joe, what are you what are you, what are you getting yourself into? And you're volunteering for all this. And at night in Honduras, at night, there would be all this, you know, fully automatic AK-47 gunfire. And the couple who ran the hotel is that just like celebratory fire, or, is, or, or there's or is there fights going on? I think a little bit of both. Got it. And the people who were the proprietors of the hotel said, "Oh, they're just killing chickens. They ain't kill no damn chickens in the middle of the night with AKs. With AKs, yeah. <laughs> Be nothing left of the chicken, you know." <laughs> uh, so um, we roll back into the states, and then we're doing our pre-deployment training. Um, getting ready to go to my next tour in Afghanistan. So again, we're in the fighting season, you know, time frame parameter. And, um, you know, working with these specialized special ops units, if you hadn't worked with them before, um, and you can probably know this, there's a lot of dick measuring going on. Check. <laughs> it's like, who are you? What can you do if they never work with you? You know, you know, we're, we weren't a special ops unit for say. You know, we're the best that DEA have, but we could shoot, move, and communicate pretty good. You know, and we could hold our own. So a lot of times, it took two or three missions of going out with people. Hey, these guys are pretty good. You know, they're decent. Um, so and a lot of people thought that. We go in with these units and they would clear it and then we would come in after the fact. That wasn't the case. We were up there from the front leading elements. Um, so to get to my point, we had our, our fast team before us that was there um, in Afghanistan. And at the time, a lot of the U.S. special ops units were doing these field stability programs where they were going out and living with the people out you know, in the villages and getting them to kind of see our way of thinking and views and values. And, you know, we could talk for hours just about that, mm -hmm. but we won't get into that here today. Um, so no U.S. special ops um, units were available to do direct action missions. So the Australian commandos stepped up. Hey, we'll do it. And they were operating, they could only operate in the Helmand province in Afghanistan. And that's a pretty hot insurgent area surgeon area of activity and they have a lot of drug production that goes on there. And that's where uh, we have a big base there, Camp Levenek, where the Marine Corps, are, Marine Corps is. So they were working, our FAST team came in and they saw we were good to go. So when we got there, we didn't have to go through all that rigmarole. We just hit the ground running. And in fact, the second op we did there, that tour, we had hit the biggest heroin lab to date at that point in time in Afghanistan. And it was just huge. And they weren't used to us being in Hellman, so we weren't running into a lot of in-placed IEDs because they weren't used to us being there. Hmm. 
but they were still putting up a hell of a fight. You know, if you're trying to take their money, and oh, hell no. Um, so we hit that huge lab. We had How big is that lab? Like, like is it? They're producing um, at a time multiple hundreds, 100 kilos of heroin at a time. And in fact, when we came in, they had a lot of it drying out. We didn't know, and you know, the rotor wash of those CH blew a lot of it away. <laughs> but there was just a ton of chemicals and equipment left. You know, then we, you know, we can't take all the stuff with us. So we, we just take representative samples, take photographs, and destroy the rest of the stuff in place. So we're, you know, in the process of destroying the stuff, and we're running into a sporadic, you know gunfire encounters we got one of our um our partner force guys got shot in the leg and we have to bring them to a medevac and some a couple of the australians got shot and we're processing this lab and um i tell you the the australian commandos they're they're a very very effective unit and very good you know i kind of put them on par to like maybe our army rangers and they roll in pretty heavy when we roll in too they will um, deploy snipers in there first to set up and if we're rolling heavy they'll bring a whole mortar company and everything too so we um and that's who you started working with and they were being guided by the aussies yeah we were being guided by the australian the australian okay. commandos okay that's who our partner force was and it's funny because like we'd be talking like this, and you can kind of understand the Aussies, and they have different slang words and stuff. But under um, stress and under firefight, <laughs> you can understand what Taylor's saying. You're like, "Can you ten nine that last, please?" <laughs> okay, in my very best English accent, this is what we want you to do. <laughs> so you know, and you know, we had quite a few prisoners at the time during this op and stuff, and. You know, you're getting ready in the middle of the night, you're loading them on this helicopter, and they never seen helicopters up close. You know, so they're just looking around, and they think it's like an alien spaceship. It's like, come on, you come with us. We're not gonna execute you, come on. You know, so we're, we're rip-rolling through this tour. We're just making some hell of a seizures. So we're getting close. We got a, like three weeks left to go. It's getting close to Halloween. And um, this bazaar, Pake Bazaar, and the Northern Helmand Province pops up hot. You know, and these bazaars out there, like outdoor flea markets with like rolling garage doors and things, and they sell everything from, you know, sundries and shampoos, chickens, but also to include chemicals and equipment to manufacture heroin, IED bomb making material, and small arms. So this bazaar pops up hot. And our team, fast team that was there before us, Bravo team had hit this bazaar with the Aussies. And they seized a lot of items and they got in a pretty big gunfight. And in fact, the supervisor of the fast team, Brett Hamilton, who was in my selection, he was um, a Marine Corps officer, old, tough, crusty guy. And we were the two oldest guys in our selection. He was a little older than me. Um, they're fighting their way back to the helicopters, and he ends up getting the Forrest Gump wound. A bee jumped up and stung him. He got shot in the buttocks. 
hard or hard dude, man. He stayed the rest of the tour. You know, they packed his wound. He was still going on ops and stuff. So we knew we were going to run into some resistance. But when we could hit it with the Aussies, there wasn't an air wing platform available with night vision capabilities that could fly us. So we're like, we really don't want to go during the day. We want to use our technical advantages, but we um, didn't have that option. And we were, our confidence was, I think, a little higher than it should have been. You know, they say you live by the sword, you die by the sword. So, like, we're going to go. So we're going to use this air wing that's training the Afghan pilots for when we left, they could take over and do stuff. And they were using old Russian MI-17 troop transport helicopters. Now, it's a pretty robust helicopter. It's not, a, it's not as big as our CH-47, but they move pretty fast. And um, they get their door and the door gunners, they got on one side a PCAM machine gun, on the other side a GAO minigun. And um, there's U.S. Co- contract pilots in there with with Afghanis, and there's one British guy, British British aviator too. So the night before, they tell us, okay, um, one of the helicopters you guys are using is going to be all Afghan crew and piloted. We're like, ooh, um, we don't really want to be on that helicopter, nor any of our Aussies, because if they decide that they're going to st- – get their jihad on that day and crash into a mountain. Don't want to be on that. And they're not quite as skilled as our pilots. So we're like, okay, um, we'll go, but our Afghan counterforce is going to infill and exfill on that bird. So we get a plan. We're going to hit the bazaar early morning hours of October 31st, 2011, just after first light. You know, we want to get there with no people in the bazaar, you know, so we don't have to deal, monkey around and deal with all that crap. Just get there. We're going to hit this bazaar, then we're going to hit another location after it. So the plan was we arrive in three MI7, no, four MI17s. Um, some fast fast team members and Australians are going to be in one. The Afghan Pounder Force is going to be in another, and then the... Australians are going to be in the other two birds. And the um, Australians are going to land and kind of set up an outer perimeter to try to keep the enemy from maneuvering in on us. But the only bad thing is it was a little bit of a mountainous area, so the enemy had the high ground on us. (sighs) And our Afghan partner force are going to land in the helicopter they're going to search this little village area right outside the bazaar. We're going to link up, and then we're going to search the bazaar in two groups. I was in charge of one of the elements made up of fast team members with some, our Afghan partner force, and then one of our other guys was leading the other group. So we land, um, start moving through, hook up with the Afghans, and shortly after, infill we receive start receiving sporadic incoming fire. Not very effective. So we're moving through and we're finding poppy seed and stuff to manufacture heroin. And I'm standing 
outside of one of the stalls in the bazaar behind this old beat-up car. I hear a shot fired, and I hear it hit the beat-up car behind me, and then I feel the back of my neck burn. I'm like, oh, shit. So I dive into the stall of the bazaar. I put my hand on my back and my neck to see if I have any blood. I don't see any blood on my glove. I have... Um, one of our Afghan translators look at it, and he says, oh, it's, it looks okay, sir. But the bullet got so close, I could feel the heat of the bullet burn the back of my neck. So I kind of had my guard up after that, and I'm like, ooh, that's a close call, Joe. So I kind of was using all my techniques and tactics I had learned throughout the years on the police department, on the SWAT team, as a DA agent, as the DA fast training and prior missions. So shortly after that, over the little shitty loudspeaker system they have over there, the insurgents do a call to arms. Today's your day to die. We must kill the infidels. We must drive them out of our land. So the incoming gunfire really increases. So we really hear the Aussies get into it with them. And you're still in the bazaar at this point? We're still in the bazaar. And the Aussies are on external security. Yes. And we have the Marine Air Wing providing close air support. And we hear the, the Marine Air Wing get into it, the Aussies getting into it. So we're finishing up what we have to do. We're taking the samples, taking photographs, and starting to destroy all the stuff. So we do that, and we say, okay, we're like 10 mics, 10 minutes out, and we'll be ready to move. So we start calling our birds to come get us. So they're inbound, and we have to make our way to our exfil locations. We're only about a couple, couple hundred meters away, not far. But we get bogged down in the gunfire. So we can't make our exfil positions in time, so we have to wave the helicopters off. So they go a distance away, but keep their rotors spinning. So, you know, at this time, you know, we're like moving in between mud huts and, you know, you're leapfrogging and you're like, you know, I know we have to get the hell out of here because the longer we stay, the more the enemy has time to amass, you know, and it's not going to be good. But, you know, in combat, you can't show fear to other people on your team or squad, even though you're feeling like, I don't know if we're going to get the hell out of here. You know, so you're moving, and we finally get set up in our exfil positions, the Afghans in their little spot, and us and the Aussies. So the four helicopters come in, and we're receiving pretty heavy incoming fire, to, to include belt-fed machine gun fire. Um, don't, remember, don't recall any RPGs. So the four helicopters come in, and we got the Afghan crew and piloted helicopter, that one we're never going to get on <laughs> in a million years. And three land. Guess which one doesn't land? The Afghan crew and pilot helicopter. And afterwards, they said because of the brownout conditions with the helicopters, helicopters picking up all the dust and rotor wash and all the incoming fire, they didn't feel comfortable landing. So instead of waiting for their bird to come, guess what the Afghans do? Pile on. To the next helicopter. And that's ours. <laughs> So they get there first. Um, we're in this open field. We run out there. We're like, get the hell off. They're not moving. I don't blame them. I wouldn't want to go back into that hell. So instead of being shot in this open damn field, 
we're like, okay, just go. So the three helicopters lift off, and then it's us fast team members and several Aussies. So we like take, how many guys are left on the ground? Um, like 10, 15 of you? Yeah, at max. Um, we had from fast, we had we had Jared, Justin, two Matts, um, Brent, Paul, myself, and a couple Aussies. So like under 10. So, of course, all the fires focus on us at this point. So we take cover in a little ditch. And then our helicopter, short time, lands about 100 meters away. And this is the one we're never going to get on, the Afghan crew and pilot helicopter. So they land. And um, I remember saying to myself, of course, your heart's racing. You're like, I got to get the hell out of here. Um, I remember saying to myself, this is going to be a shitty run. You know, there's bullets just popping up everywhere. So, I, But I knew we couldn't stay. <clears throat> so one of the last memories I kind of have from that day is I get up to run. I remember firing a couple shots on the run towards the direction I felt insurgents were firing at us from. I guess I got the helicopter about mid-pack, and that's when I paused and was providing fire for the rest of my teammates to get on or near the helicopter. And then once that happened, my team leader, Jared Johnson, said, let's roll, I guess. And that's when I turned left to run onto the helicopter, and then I got hit in the head. At first, he thought I fell, and he's trying to rouse me, and I'm not moving. I'm face first into the ground. And then he rolls me over, and he sees the, like, ballistic glasses I was wearing were shattered. And he sees a hole in my head. So they roll me over, and they're thinking I'm dead, which is very, you know, very possible situation here. You get took around to the head. Mm-hmm. And so they grab me, scoop me up, throw me in a helicopter. That's when Brent and, you know, he put me in cover, fire down. Uh, Matt Stewart's trying to get the Afghan door gunners to fire. They're not even firing. And the helicopter's getting shot up. You know, we're getting shot at, and he's like, shoot, shoot, shoot. So they fire a couple rounds, you know, burst into the ground. So he's like, no, shoot, shoot. So he takes, you know, he grabs the gun and starts shooting a little bit. So they, they throw me on the helicopter, and, um, you know, they think I'm dead. You know, the helicopter's very loud in there, of course, and everything, so you can't hear breathing. So one of my teammates, Justin Vanderbilt, who actually before DEA, he was a medic in New Orleans, and he was there during Katrina. So he was kind of like one of our more highly trained, kind of our version of like 18 Delta medical guy, even though we all go through pretty intense TCCC combat care and actually live tissue training and stuff. Um, He's like, he's alive, he's breathing. So they start getting my stuff cut off and um, they apply combat gauze to my head wounds, which is gauze with clotting agent in there. So they're getting that under control. And then a lot of times with facial wounds or different that head wounds, you want to try to establish a better airway. And you know, and you can do that by a couple different ways. You can do a crike where you cut, you know, under the person's throat and you insert an implement in there, help them breathe more. Or you can use a nasal pharyngeal airway. 
and they decide they're going to stick a nasopharyngeal airway up my nose. And in training, we have to insert these in on each other. And um, just so everyone knows, this is like a. It's basically like a U-shaped tube that you cram in someone's nose that will open up the airway between your nostrils and like your lungs, not all the way down to your lungs, but like through your head. You know, they're probably, what do you think they are, Joe? Like maybe five inches long total, something yes, like that? Yes, and the one end looks like there's a funnel on there and the other end, you know, and in training, we can put lidocaine in our nose before we do it, but it still sucks or no... <laughs> No offense attended. Um, when we were training with the seals, they allow us to spit on them and stick these up in his nose. And these are not fun. No. And when they're cramming this up my nose, I come too. I don't remember any of this. It's probably a good thing. Um, I'm talking, making sense. Um, I recognize people's voices. I'm not complaining about my head, even though I have a hole on each set. On each side, I say, get it out of my eyes. The pressure from the high-velocity round, which we think was an armor-piercing round from a bell-fed PKM machine gun, traveling through my head, ruptured both my eye globes and detached both retinas. So they pour saline solutions on my eyes. Of course, that doesn't do jack crap. And then I'm telling them, I got to move my leg. So they think I'm shot in the leg, too, with all the gunfire that was coming at us. And this particular mission, I did not have my belt-fed machine gun. I had my carbine with a suppressor on it. And I had been shooting quite a bit. So when I got knocked unconscious, I fell on the barrel of my rifle and the suppressor, and it burned inside of my left leg real bad. Mm. And actually, the cry pants I was wearing were burned. You know, they were burned. And... Um, they, you know, they burned my leg pretty good. So they're, you know, they're working on me and, you know, they're getting me back to the base as quick as possible. And I don't know, my teammates said the thing that scared them, even when the bleeding stopped, my head just kept swelling up and swelling up. They knew there was nothing they could do there. But luckily for me, um, the helicopter was there when I got shot. So, you know, I usually take the time now to talk about some of the things that I think led to my survivability is that, you know, even though I was severely wounded by my team providing that fast medical attention, they had stalled my decompensation, giving time for me to get the higher care. And um, I know it's not in vogue at times or this and that, but for all instances, I should be dead. Talking to the medical professionals, over 80% of the people who get my injury do not survive. And the day I became a police officer, my um, mother gave me a St. Michael's medallion. It's a patron saint to protect police officers and I always carried one on me. I had one in my kit. Um, I always did the Psalm 91 prayer before I went on missions and carried a copy on me. That's the prayer of soldiers going into battle for the Lord to protect you. And I had one of my grandfather's dog takes in World War II on me. And um, it was not my time to go. The Lord had more for me to do. I think some of that is me doing my motivational speaking now. Um, 
helping others deal with situations and instances, and it just was not my time to go. And then with all our high-speed medical training that we had, once my teammates found that I was alive, nobody panicked. And unfortunately, over there, we had to use our medical training more than we had liked. So that, and also, you know, I talk about mindset. You know, you have to have this mindset that if you're in a fight for your life or you're with a suspect or an enemy and you're fighting for your life or getting in a shootout or it could be you could be at home, you could have an accident or driving a car. If you're in a fight, you have to survive. You have to fight. You have to kick, claw, scratch, gout, whatever you have to do. You have to think to yourself, I am not going to lose this fight. I am not going to lose. I'm going to survive. I'm going to make it through that. You have to have that mental attitude. You know, I kind of call it the warrior's mindset or the winning mentality that I'm going to survive and make it through this. You know, there's no way I'm not going to make it through. Even though at first I was not unconscious, my body and my mind didn't give up. You're going you're gonna to make it through this, Joe. You know, I didn't see any bright light or anything. I may have saw some little fire below or something. <laughs> it was, yes, it wasn't time. Um, so um, also talking to the doctors, I was in really great physical shape when I got shot. And the better shape you're in, a lot of times, the more traumatic injury you can survive. And a lot of times, the better your recovery is. So, you know, so when I talk to groups, you know, especially military law enforcement groups, you know, I tell people, you don't have to be an Olympic athlete, but please, please, please be in the best shape you can because it may save your life. You never know. Like I said, it could be a car accident you're in or you could fall off a ladder at the house. You know, just please stay in the best shape that you can. So we fly back to the base, Tarrant Cout, which we're staying at with the Aussies. So we land at on the airfield there, and the ambulance comes out to meet us. And they don't bring a stretcher to the bird. They think they have me on a stretcher. Even though we have them, they didn't have me on one. So I hear this commotion going on. So guess what the guy shot in the head does? He gets off the walk off the helicopter. <laughs> My team is like, no, Joe, we got you. We'll carry you. So they carry me to the ambulance, bring me to the medical facility there. They do what they can for me there. Do you remember trying to get up and walk? No. I don't, I don't, I don't remember talking to my teammates on the helicopter, none of that. All I remember is firing a couple shots on the run. Because, I, you know, talking to the doctors, because I guess, you know, when I got hit, it was just lights out. And it's kind of your brain's mechanism to protect you. Mm-hmm. And I'm probably glad I don't remember any of that stuff. So they brought me to the medical facility there. They knocked me unconscious, did what they can for me there. And then they make arrangements to fly me in a medevac helicopter to Kandahar Airfield, which they had a neurosurgeon and eye surgeon standing by. So I'm flown over there with one of my teammates, Matt Stewart, we arrive there. So they, of course, they do an assessment on me there. And it was 
fortunate for me that day, it was Halloween. So not a lot of groups were doing, or units were doing missions. So they didn't have many casualties in the hospital there. So they first take a look at me, and I guess I'm starting to be kept alive with basic life-saving procedures at this time. And they don't think there's anything they can do to save me. So they're just going to have me pass peacefully and then have me sent home, back home on an angel flight, deceased. But the doctor, the neurosurgeon, he's a pretty aggressive guy, and then the, the nurse that intook me there, and he's looking at me, he's talking to my teammates, you know, my teammate that I was talking after in the helicopter. I got up to walk off. I was trying to get whatever's in my eyes out, and he sees what shape I'm in, and he's convinced that if he gets in and performs surgery, that they can get the, the bleeding in my head stopped and some of the pressure relieved, and at least get me home to the state so my family can see me. Didn't know what condition I was gonna be in, even though I, you know, I was talking in the helicopter and he had to decide whether I could survive even what he was gonna do to me during surgery. And he felt strongly that I had the will that I wasn't going to die. And he told me after the fact, with brain injuries and head injuries, he said there was a smell that somebody gave off that he could tell if they weren't gonna make it or not. Mm -hmm. And he said, I did not have that smell. And um, the head nurse there, you know, they're bickering back and forth, whether, you know, he's fighting the command, whether they should use their resources to save me. And I guess there's a line in the hospital there, once you cross over that line, surgery has to take the patient. You can't push him back. So the head nurse at the time, which I'm still friends with, I'm not gonna mention her name because I don't want her getting in any trouble, pushed me over that line. So surgery had to take me. So they, be, they began to operate on me. The neurosurgeons spend approximately four and a half hours operating on me. Um, they actually removed the whole frontal skull piece off my head. Um, my frontal, all my frontal forehead is now titanium. They got the bleeding stopped. They got, um, they put a valve in there to regulate my pressure. And then the eye surgeon came in and he's like, she's like talking to the main doctor. He's like, is he really survivable? Am I going to spend all this work on somebody where he's just going to be sent home in a box? And that was a possibility, but he says, I think, you know, he's going to make it. So she spent approximately eight hours piecing my eyes back together with a microscope. And the work she did has given me the opportunity in the future to be able to potentially see more. My left eye has some light perception, and I can see some movement in my left eye, and I can see some shapes so there's a bigger color contrast between light and dark. So she pieces my eyes back together. So the next day, one of my best friends on my unit, he was in another part of the country trying to get some other ops together. He makes it there, and he flies back en route to the States with me. Of course, they had me on this big, I guess, medical um, plane, you know, where pretty much each patient has their own nurse and everything. 
and um, we're en route back to the States. And of course, they're letting my family know what happened and everything. And at the time, I was engaged. And I told my fiance at the time, I said, don't, um, if I can't get a hold of you, you can't get a hold of me, I'm out on an op. When I get back in, we'll um, Skype or, and I'll text you or call you. I said, only worry if um, two people come knocking on the door. So she was a nurse. She worked night shift, and she, Afghanistan's like eight and a half hours different. And um, she hears a knock on the door that morning after she got back from work, and she goes to the door, and she sees two gentlemen through the window she doesn't recommend, and they put their badges out, and she's like, oh, shit. So she opens the door, and she starts bawling. They're like, he's not dead. He's in surgery. We don't know, but he's alive at this point. So they get all my family notified and everything, and then um, we had to fly over to Launstuhl, Germany, and they have a pretty good medical thing there with my buddy Travis, and because the pressure in my head was rising, they kept me there for three nights, and then um, they flew me uh, to um, Andrews Air Force Base. I was gonna say Dover, but you don't wanna make it to Dover, because that means you're dead. <laughs> Um, so they flew me to Andrews and then had all my family at the hospital and all the people from DEA and everything, the, the higher-ups and, you know, some of the other people on other teams waiting to receive me. So they take me um, via ambulance over to Walter Reed National Naval Medical Hospital in Bethesda, Maryland. So they, when I arrived, they let my family see me. They plan on doing some other surgeries there. But, of course, I'm a mess. I have no frontal skull piece. My head's all caved in. I guess, you know, I'm swollen. I got a tube coming out of almost every part of my body. And they let my family see me. And at the time, my fiance was a um, intensive care nurse. So she's seen a lot of trauma, a lot of bad things. But I guess when she saw me, of course, when it's your loved ones, it's different. She put her hand on her mouth, screamed, ran out of the room, and passed out. Her dad had to help her off the floor. You know, it's when it's somebody you love and care about, it's different. So they brought me in there. They did some surgeries on me. They reattached my retinas. They cleaned up my head area more in preparation for putting my plate on my metal plate that I have now on later. But they don't want to put it on too quick because the chance of rejection is greater and everything. So they want to wait. So they um, do that. And then they put me in an induced coma with that, that profilvol. Um, you want to maybe call it the Michael Jackson drug. The one Michael Jackson used to sleep. God, I'll rest Michael Jackson. You know, God rest his soul. It works very good for putting people in a coma, but you can reverse them real quick. But not necessarily. It's not not necessarily prescribed for sleep. Um, so they had me on that, and they had me um, they had me intubated and everything. So they had me in induced coma for about a week, and then when they were getting ready to bring me out of the coma, they didn't know how I was going to be, even though. I was talking and making sense on the helicopter and all that. With the additional trauma of the surgeries, they wouldn't know if I could speak at all, would I remember anything, would I have my same personality. Um, but they cern the sh shortly after they learned I was the same smart-ass Joe I was before, 
you know, I was a little confused at first. Um, they asked me, you know, where do you live? I'm like, oh, Detroit, Michigan. What do you do? I'm a police officer. What's your dog's name? I said, Max. That was my very first dog I had when I was a kid. But I soon, shortly after I got my bearings, I knew who I was at the particular time. I knew who I was working for and everything. So then started my road to recovery. You know, so now I'm blind. Um, I'm not in the best, you know, the best condition physically at this particular time because of the injuries. You know, so they begin to start my recovery process. And I was on a feeding tube for a while, so they had to pull that out, and they trick you. They say, okay, we're going to pull this out on three. <laughs> One, two, uh. I'm like, oh, you didn't wait for three. I was like, uh. I'm like, we say that because we want to catch you by surprise. You don't want you to say three, then pull, and then you tighten it, and it makes it worse. Um, so I had to learn how to eat solid food. I failed a couple swallow studies at first, and... You know, of course, I'm losing weight by the minute because I'm not being active. And the people at the hospital, oh, he's got a lot of muscle. He's in good shape. You know, he's. And Mike's wife at the time, or ex fiance, you didn't see him before. So we started meeting, making them feed me, you know, like ensure in between meals and stuff to try to put some more weight on. And we do things like, okay, today your task is, okay, Joe, have you put your shorts on and your t shirt and your socks? You know, how long is it going to take you? And I said, you know, obviously five or ten minutes or whatever. So the one time I'm sitting there with the physical therapist and my ex, and um, I'm feeling these shorts. And I'm like, these don't feel like my size. I'm like, what size are these? And, of course, my ex doesn't say anything like a church mouse. She's like, she knows she's telling me what size they are. I'm going to throw a hissy fit. So the... Therapist says, let me see, I'll tell you. She goes, they're medium. I took those shorts, I threw them across the room. I said, I'm a big fella, I wear extra large. If I would have put those extra large shorts on there, they would have fell straight to the floor. Mm-hmm. Because when I got shot, I was probably 230s really lean. And they would weigh me on the bed every day. I was down, I got down to like 160 something. <sighs> so those shorts would have. What was the time frame for that? Like a month? Mm-hmm. Two wow. months. I spent two months there. Not, Jeez. not, not long. So we got over that, and then I was I was confused, and then um, of course my eye doctor. He was his name was Doctor Chung there, and a very serious man. So one day we're sitting in my room. My father's there with me, and my teammate Travis. And Doctor Chung walks in, and Travis is like, Doctor Chung, I, I want to tell you. Joe thinks he's African-American. I was all jacked up. So I'm talking and acting like I'm an inner-city African-American guy and lingo and everything. And Dr. Chung, like, are you serious? And Travis says, yes. And then my dad's like, well, he is from Detroit. <laughs> so, so Dr. Chung thought it was pretty serious, but I only acted that way for a couple months, you know, a couple days, you know. And then I got my bearings back. So, yeah, it, you know, it, it progressed there, and they did everything they can for me there, and then they let me start doing, a, like, a little bit of workout stuff there, and they brought me to, like, the little PT gym area, and they're like, 
okay, we're going to have you do like some little dumbbell stuff. And like, okay, tell me which way. Where are the 120s? (laughs) With the weight, you know, tell me it's good. I said, oh, these are too heavy. No, these are too heavy. These are too heavy. Okay, these are good. And then I found out after the fact, Max, Joe, those were the pink dumbbells you were using. Oh, no. (laughs) They're like probably two pounds or what? (laughs) Oh, I don't care. I'm I'm getting in work, you know? Yeah, yeah. You know, so um, we did that, and they start, you know, teaching you how to – um, operate blind and I don't know for some goofy reason I thought I didn't have any skin on my head where my brain was I thought it was just like mesh so they're like Joe you need to take a shower we need to get you a shower and I'm like I can't get my brain wet <laughs> and Max is like Joe you have skin there I'm like ooh I do <laughs> so you kind of lose all your dignity you got to go in the shower with this you know this nurse or whatever they're all gowned up and all this rubber gear and you just, you know, stand there with your b- birthday suit on butt naked. I'm like, guess I'm taking a shower, you know. <laughs> and so how long was this, you know, recovery process? How long did you stay? Was, it, was this still taking place at Bethesda? Yes. I was there for two months. Two months. When So you lost freaking whatever. You went from 230 to 160. Something, yes. And now you start rebuilding. Yes. And, and when you start rebuilding... Does that really start to take place when you get out of Bethesda? Yes, because they transferred me down to the um, McGuire VA down in Richmond, Virginia, you know, after that. So it was kind of nice, but we're getting close to Christmas time now-ish. And um, so on the weekends, they let me go home as long as I came back Sunday night. And I got to go home for the holidays, and then we became started doing a lot, learning there a lot more how to operate in a blind world, like use the blind cane, use some of the voiceover stuff, like on the computer and things like that. And I began to let me start working out more there. You know, sir, during this time, I'm like, I don't know what's going to happen to me or not happen to me. And... I'm like, our administrator at the time, her name was Michelle Linehart. She was like in charge of us. And she asked my buddy Travis, what does Joe want? He's like, Joe wants to keep working. She goes, we'll make it happen. So even though I didn't meet the physical requirements to be a DEA agent anymore, they kept me on as a DEA agent after this because they figured out the money. You make a lot more retiring as a regular agent rather than taking a medical disability. Mm-hmm. So they kind of hooked me up. and. During my stay in Walter Reed, Bethesda, um, hearing my teammates and my parents talk about, they bring all these wounded service members back home from overseas, tore up bad. A lot of these are younger kids. When this happened to me, I was like 41 years old. I lived a pretty damn good life. And a lot of these kids, um, maybe not married, maybe newly married, uh, maybe just had some, you know, a child and, you know, their life has drastically changed forever. So when I would have my pity party and why me, woe is me, you know, I would say, Joe, it always could be worse. Somebody always has it worse than you. You know, you can't control what you don't have anymore, all you can do is work work with what you have now. 
So in life, when bad things happen, we can make a couple choices. We can let life pass us by or we can get out there and do as much as we can do. And I made a commitment to myself that I'm going to try to do as much blind as what I could see. I didn't know how that was going to look. Um, but I made that commitment. And when there's a will, there's a way. If you want to figure out how to do stuff and make stuff happen, it may not be the same way you used to do it. It may take you a lot longer, but if you really want to do something bad enough, you can do it. So I made that commitment right there, right then. And I tell people when I talk, it's not been easy. Every day is a struggle for me. I still wake up every day blind. You know, I've had a, a very severe, severe traumatic brain injury. I've had a pretty bad PTSD because of it. And I've done stuff to manage and mitigate that. And, you know, when I talk, you know, with the amount of suicide from service members and this and that, you know, a lot of us want to play we're tough and it doesn't affect us and this and that. But you can't get help unless you admit you have it and ask for the help. Because there are things and things out there. And I got the stellic ganglion block shot, which helps with PTSD. Um, you have a stellate gland in your neck. When you have PTSD, that gland gets all screwed up. And they go in and deaden the gland. And it's kind of like reboots your brain and your computer. And it helps you tremendously. You know, so there's things things out there. So there's things that I've went on and done since I've been blind. Um, I've tandem skydive jumped. <laughs> and um, a buddy of mine, his wife out in Monterey, California, runs a skydiving place. And before I wanted to tandem jump, but I've always kind of been over the weight limit. <laughs> and, yes, he, and he says for a tandem, he's like, what, you know, what are you going to weigh, Joe? I said, ah, I'm about 240 right now. And I knew I couldn't be over two. He says, come up and we'll make it happen. So he's, when we weighed in, his wife wanted to please us, tell me you weigh 230. <laughs> so my tandem uh, guy that's jumped with me, he takes a look at me, he says, we're going to fall real quick. <laughs> You're like, how far do you want to, how high do you want to jump, Joe? I said, high as we can go. So, um, I guess we jumped at 16,000 feet. Wow. And I guess that's the highest you can go without, we should go without oxygen, you know, you know, any higher than that, you want to be on oxygen and any higher than that, you need to get FAA approval. <laughs> so we were the first ones to go out of the bird and I don't know if it's worse being able to see or not. <laughs> but you can't, look, you know, you know, you know, we jumped out of um, a King Air and, you know, they opened that door and the wind's just rushing. And, you know, we're the first, and they tell you what to do, you know, and we're going to rock back on, you know, one, two, three, then go, and then, you know, put your arms back, and then how to land properly and stuff. But it was it was definitely a kick in the pants. Um, would I do it again? Probably yes, because I'm, I'm nuts. And even in the hospital, when we're talking about my frontal brain lobe injury, the doctors told my parents, well, he can never be trusted with a credit card anymore. He might just be at work and take all his clothes off. My mom's like, well, he didn't make good decisions to begin with, so he's not going to lose much there. <laughs> it affected me to an extent, but did not affect me to the extent where uh, it could have, thankfully. So I also do all kind of, I hunt and shoot blind with special optics. So how does that work? Um, on top of your rifle, 
where a scope would would sit. You have like it's like a high speed video camera mm-hmm. that has um, built in Wi Fi, and it projects to a tablet or a smartphone, and basically it'll show on a tablet or a smartphone like a sight picture of a scope, and you got you know assistant gunner, a gunner, and they tell me left, right, up, or down, and as long as I my breathing's controlled and I don't jerk the trigger, I can hit a pie plate at 300 meters every time. Since I've been blind, I've shot five deer, two bucks and three does. I got two alligators in Louisiana (laughs) with a, um, we had a Glock pistol with a laser sight. And I remember before watching that show Swamp People and I Can See, I said, they're nuts. I said, you would never catch me in a million years doing that. So an opportunity came up. Hey, Joe, you want to go gator hunting? <laughs> oh, yeah, sure. I guess that goes back to my poor decision-making. <laughs> and I tell you, there was some pucker factor going on there, buddy. So I'm with another guy from Fast, and we were with the guy we were with. His brother is a DA agent, and he this guy works um, in the oil business out in Louisiana, New Orleans area, and he does the gator hunting. <clears throat> so... We go to a couple of our lines, and it, it, if the, the listeners and whoever said they've ever seen how they catch them, <clears throat> you have a, a big like trumble hook with chicken on it, and they set them up, and the gator bites the chicken and gets caught in this hook, and then you have to go um, and pull the gator up, and then you got to shoot them. Now, in the show, like Swamp People, they yank on the line to try to get the gator to go nuts for theatrics for TV. Mm. Now, how you want to do it? You want to pull them up slow so they don't fight, and a gator can only stay underwater for so long, and yada, yada, yada. So we pull up to the first couple lines, and they're not touched. So we pull up to the third line, and he's like, oh, shit, we got a big one. They go, he's on the bank. He's got the chicken in his mouth. He's about a 10-footer. So we roll up in this little John boat, and um, we get to the line, and the guy's starting to pull him in, so... Um, I'm on my knees. I got this Glock with the laser sight on it, 40 caliber Glock, you know, and I could just press the, the pad for laser sight, you know, when we're ready, and he can kind of guide me in for the shot. So we're, he's pulling the gator in, and the gator gets under the boat. He's like, oh, shit. <laughs> so he's like, okay, we're not going to force this. He's got to eventually come up. So I'm thinking, you got the gator snout not too far from me. I'm on my knees, and I'm like, Joe, what the hell are you doing out here? I'm like, you're blind, and if this gator snaps to bite you, you can't even see to jump back, and then these locals are going to be out, you know, we're going to see after the fact, that's certain, right? Ain't no blind guy in no business out there anyway. What the hell that guy from the city out blind out there hunting alligators to get my arm bit off? So believe me, there was some pucker factor. <laughs> So the gator starts yanking. I like the fact that not only you're a little worried you might lose your arm from a gator, but you also don't want to look stupid in front exactly. of people. You know, it's always a key thing. You got you got to look cool. You know, you can't. <laughs> the, the, now there's the blind guy, with one arm. You know. <laughs> so um, the gator starts fighting a little bit, and the guy's like, "Shit!" He bent the hook and got off. So he's like, okay, keep your eye out. My buddy's there with his pistol, and he's got, he takes the Glock. He's, he's got a surface. 
he can only stay down for so long. So he goes, look for the bubbles. He goes, I see bubbles. He, he, he goes, he's coming up. So he shoots him, pow, hits him in the head, hits him again, pow. And the buddy I'm with, he says, I shoot him too. He goes, yeah. So he shoots him. So we go over to the gator and then we push him to the shore to try to get this big SOB on the boat. So as we're trying to get him on the boat, I hear another shot. The gator's already got three bullets in his head. He opens his eyes again. So the guy hits him in the head again, and he's done. So we got this big big gator on the boat, so it takes up all the room. So we have to drop him off to try to check other lines. And we went to our next line. He had like a, a nine-footer on there, and he was putting up more of a fight, and I got to shoot that one twice. So that was kind of um, kind of interesting. Have actually, um, I was in Sun Valley, Idaho last year during hyperbaric oxygen chamber treatments uh, because that increases stem cell activity, trying to get a little more sight back. And I got to downhill snow ski three times. I did that when I was younger, and it's kind of counterintuitive, but skiing, you want to lean forward Mm -hmm. in blind. You don't want to lean forward when you're walking because you don't want to crack your head on things. And I've actually got stitches a couple times in my eyebrow since I lost my sight because I was in a hurry. Um, so that was fun. That was on my bucket list. Um, I tried slalom water skiing at our cottage up north this last year. I used to ski a lot when I was young. I just, I popped up, but I couldn't get my f- other foot in the rear boot. I couldn't, my balance was off with blind. So I tried a couple times and at least I tried. <laughs> um, so I did that. Um, I ran 5K races blind. And I've actually, last July, I, as you know, I'm a little guy. Um, I became the first blind IFBB men's pro bodybuilder in history. Got my pro card. So I did that. And... Um, you know, the sky's, the sky's the limit. You know, there's different things, you know, you can do. And you can't cry over spilled milk. And you can just control what you can control. And a lot of people ask me, you know, what are some of the hardest things getting used to being blind, Joe? I think one of the biggest things, you lose your independence. I just can't get in the car and go somewhere myself. Or if I want to work out, I just can't go by myself. And... So you have to rely on other people. And, you know, I'm typical like the, you know, the law enforcement guy or the military, real type A. Want to do everything by myself. You know, you can't, you know, if you're falling behind, I'm just going to take over, you know. You know, you want to do it right, do it yourself. I had to learn how to slow down and trust other people. And which was probably good for me. I had to learn to ask for help. I wasn't good at that before. But lucky, I have a very good um, base of friends and teammates and family, and DEA has really stepped up since I've been hurt myself or my family. has never been without anything. And at first, being in crowds really freaked me out because being in law enforcement for as long as I have, you're always taught to be aware of your surroundings. I, I know you're not supposed to... Um, You know, I'm trying to th- think of the think of the you know. Oh God, um, it, it'll come to me. But I was getting uh, on this subject. 
I was getting uh, debriefed by like a psychologist situation, mm-hmm. and we, we, we I filled out some form. And they're like, um, one of the things was like, uh, do, you know, do you feel comfortable in crowds? And um, I said, do you feel comfortable in crowds? And I was like, well, well, no. <laughs> and so you know, the psychiatrist it's a is a female. She looks at it. She says, you know you. She says, oh, "Do you you say you don't feel very comfortable in crowds?" And this was like, I mean, I I was back from Iraq, but you know, whatever. It's mm-hmm. been a little bit of time. And she says, "You know, you say you don't feel very comfortable in crowds." And I said, "Well, no, not really." And she goes, "Well, why is that?" And I go, "Well, you know, there's terrorists in America, right?" <laughs> yes. <laughs> and she looked like she like whatever. She started taking copious notes, you know, yes. about, about my mental health or whatever. Which I was just like, "Hey, it's a reality, you know. Yes. It's a reality." But, you know, you know, because you always want to be aware of your surroundings. Okay, where are my entrances? Where are my exit exits? Yeah. Who looks suspicious? Who doesn't? You know, you're not trying to like stereotype people, but it's all what doesn't look right. And at first, being blind, things sound to people were sounded closer than what they were or farther than what they were. I was just real uneasy. But over time, I learned to deal with that. So I'm not as jittery and stuff as I once was. I just learned to, you know, trust the people around me. And so, you know, that's one of the things people ask me, do I have a service dog? I don't I put in for one but then I got uh, my left eye I had a chance to get an artificial cornea in my left eye and they thought I could get back more vision than I did so I didn't want to take a dog from somebody who needed it more and the artificial cornea helped me see a little better but not as much as we had hoped for so I still might get a, a service dog in the future. They're pretty incredible what they can do. They're awesome. Yeah, very incredible. And, um, you know, people ask me, do I get headaches and stuff a lot? And, no, I never had a headache, thank God. Um, because people ask that question. And, you know, they ask me, you know, what is, you know, what can you see? What can you can't see? Like I said earlier, I can see shapes. I can see light. I can see some movement. On an eye chart, my left eye is 2,400 to 2,500, depending on the day. Anything over 2,200 is legally blind. My right eye is nothing. That's the side the bullet went into. Um, if the eye doctor shines a light, I said, I can think I can see a light. But there's future. With my left eye, I have artificial cornea. So there is help. The thing that's limiting my sight is my optic nerve and retina still very damaged, but they are working on stem cell for that to regenerate that. And they're still fairly confident in two to five years I could get more sight back, mm-hmm. which um, which would be nice. And if I do, that would be great. But if not, you know, I'm still going to keep soldiering on and do what, you know, and do what the hell you know, I can do. And they said, you know, you don't want to be the first for any of these things. You want to let them work the kinks out of this <laughs> yeah. this stuff first. You know, I'd, you know, before we had all this mess with China, you heard them doing the stem cells and everything over there. And I asked my eye doctor, so I go to the best eye doctors that I can now. They're like, you don't want to go over there, Joe. When the technology is good and it works, we'll have it here too. So, you know, just on standby to standby for that. You know, so... You know, we'll keep going with that. I do my motivational speaking, which gives me purpose now. 
you know, I've always been, you know, took jobs and different things were to serve people and serve the community. I can't do my job the way I have in the past. But for me to get up there and talk to people and tell my story, one, it's therapeutic for me, too, to talk about it. And two, if somebody's having a bad day, a bad year, a bad whatever, that to see there's always somebody that has it worse. It always could be worse. So, you know, you got to count the blessings you have and be thankful for the things that you still have. You can't cry about what you don't have anymore. All you can just do is move on. So, you know, I'm going to continue doing the motivational speaking, which is good, you know, and there's been groups I've talked to where I've got after-action reports where people in the audience um, have were going to commit suicide, and they heard me talk, and they said, my life's really not that bad. You know, I, I, I can do it. You know, so I tell people, you know, if I can do it, you can do it. You know, I've always had a strong will. I've always been very stubborn. That kind of helped me survive, but the stubbornness isn't always so good in relationships. You know, because I could be a pain in the butt, just ask my girlfriend. You know, and I do really preach the PTSD part, too, because we're losing way too many men and women for that. So if you do have it, and I always knew I had it, but I didn't get better until I admitted I had it, because while I was still working, I was afraid I was going to lose my security clearance and this and that. And in, in all actuality, I would not have. But, you know, there's things and treatments and things you can do for that, like the stellate ganglion block shot is um, one a great thing for that. You know, finding a good fit with a therapist, you know, that, you know, can work with you. So all those things are important. So to me, I tell people, it's macho to say you have it. It's not macho to have it and say you don't have it. You know, so don't be, you know, a tough guy or a tough gal. There's help out there, but please, you know, seek that help. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, no, it's uh, for me, um, you know, one of my guys, Ryan Job, was, was also shot in the head, and uh, he also ended up losing his vision. And unfortunately, um, after that, you know, after one of the surgeries, one of the many surgeries that he went through, there was some there was some medical complications, and and he and he passed away. Um, but it's it's for me, you know, meeting you, seeing you, talking to you, you know, you had this, you have the same kind of attitude that he had. You know, he 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 had been blind, and he was doing all kinds of things. He was climbing Mount Rainier. He was he had shot a bull elk. Uh, you know, he was doing the kind of stuff that you're doing. So it's it's awesome for me to see someone in your situation that has the same exact attitude that Ryan Job had. Just a just a, a warrior badass that just was still driving on regardless. Oh, I, one of the things I forgot too. Another animal that I shot this past um, year. I went to West Virginia and I shot a black bear. <laughs> So it, it was a female bear, and I named it Penelope after the fact. I got that stuffed. So that's my little, little Penelope. <laughs> what are the workouts? You just do your normal workouts that you used to do for bodybuilding in the first place? Uh, you know, I've been doing it for so long. My very first bodybuilding show was in 1993. I did the Central States in Michigan. After college, I was still looking to something competitive. I've always been a big guy. 
Um, and I'm pretty knowledgeable about nutrition and the workouts and stuff, but I'm also smart enough to know there's always somebody who knows more than you. So me being blind, I can't see how I look. I can kind of feel when I'm getting leaner and this and that. So I do have a coach. Um, so my coach, you know, I check in at least right now in the off season every week, send them pictures or videos, how I'm looking, answering questions, you know, how's my appetite? Um, how am I feeling this way and that way? You know, getting blood work all the time to make sure everything is functional optimally. Of course, I spend a shit ton of money on supplements. And the coach kind of guy, he sees my, okay, you know, we'll, um, you know, you need to do maybe some more fat burning cardio. You know, we'll arrange your diet this way. Um, and also he sends me workouts too to follow. You know, depending on the time of year, you know, depending on the workout and the rep range and the amount of cardio I'm doing. So it's important too, you have to have a good coach you can trust too, that's good. But a lot of these coaches, unfortunately, blow smoke up their clients' butts. <laughs> oh, you look great. You're going to be Mr. Olympia and this and that. And they can't even win a local show, you know. <laughs> it's like, no, no, I'd rather have somebody be honest with me. You know, hey, Joe, you, you know, you looks like you're ready for this competition or you're not. And, and please tell me. I'll make the corrections I need to make or maybe we're going to have to wait on, you know, and do a, a later competition. So, you know, we'll see what the future holds. You know, I um, – if I get some more sight back, I would like to do you know some tactical training with people, maybe some firearms training. Uh, I get more sight back. I could be a, a a coach for people getting ready for competitions, but I couldn't justify now if I can't see how they look. I can't really do an effective job, you know. So keep moving forward with those things, and if any other opportunities pop up, you know, you know, I'll be willing to to. Um, do those things and you know i'm 52 years old now you can't let these young guys beat you so you got to keep yourself in shape yes sir <laughs> you know i was working you know work overseas you know with these special ops guys and I'm like how old are you <laughs> 41 i was like okay grandpa <laughs> so i got a grandpa for you you know <laughs> well hey uh that's awesome probably a probably a good place to wrap up so if if people want to um you know, contact you for your speaking. I know you're you're at joep.us. That's right, right? For your for your website? Yes, I got a website. It's got all my things uh, speaking on there, how to get a hold of me. And I, I've spoken to all different kind of groups, teams, different kind. I've spoke to, you know, corporations. I spoke to people at Quicken's Loans. So whoever wants to hear me run my mouth, I'll talk to. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. Uh, Echo, you got any questions? Uh, yeah, rewind a little bit back to Afghanistan, the um, heroin poppies. And who's growing that and why? Um, the, the, the Taliban makes the farmers grow it. Yeah. And the Taliban is growing that because that's their money source income. Okay, so who do they sell that to? A lot of that heroin goes to Europe. We get some of it over here in the United States, but the great majority of it goes to the European consumers. Okay, got it. So it, just like um, you know, in Colombia and stuff like that, Afghanistan is yet just another hub for another make hub. It. Yes, it. and you know, it's um, you know, a, a real big country that consumes a lot of heroin is actually Russia too. They have a pretty bad heroin problem there, but you know, it's big money, and that's you know what funds their insurgency. And the problem is now that we're gone out of Afghanistan and how we, it's 
crazy there again. Mm-hmm. You know, they're just growing uncontrolled. And like I said, when we were hitting them hard, we didn't eradicate it, but you can see it was having an effect. Yeah. But now it's just, you know, bonsai, it's open now. It's crazy. Mm-hmm. That must be, uh, as you look at like drugs, you're, you're, you spent so much time in the DEA. When you hear people talk about legalizing drugs, what is your, what's your thoughts on that? And this is just my thoughts only. Um, I've talked to numerous, numerous drug addicts, and the common drug that they start with is marijuana. And in my opinion, without a doubt, it's a gateway drug. And the marijuana that's out there now, it's not the same marijuana that even was five or seven years ago. It's so strong, you know, and it could lead to other things. And, you know, we could, we could have a whole debate on that. And every state that it's legalized, um, the auto accidents has really increased. You know, it's still illegal federally, you know, and, and for some medical conditions, you know, I can see that it could be useful for but in my opinion, mm-hmm. a lot of people who use it, say, under the guise of medical, it's just to get high. You know, and that's, this, that's just my opinion. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, Joe, you got any closing thoughts? Just um, everybody out there just listening, you know, like I said, there's a will, there's a way. If you want to get something done, you can get it done. And just, you know, have that, have that mindset and just keep going. And if things get bad or down... Tomorrow is a new day. Make it through that day. Wake up the next day and give that next day hell. Awesome, man. Um, Thanks for joining us. Uh, Appreciate you coming on here. Appreciate you sharing these lessons that you've learned. And and most important, thank you for thank you for your incredible service and your incredible sacrifice for our nation. And thanks for what you're doing today, going around, talking to people, being here, just continuing to inspire people to overcome whatever whatever adversity that they're facing. Uh, it's an incredible example that you set for all of us. So thank you for being here, and thanks for everything you do. You're quite welcome. It's my honor and privilege. And with that, Joe Piersante has left the building. Echo. Yes, sir. What do you think of that? Uh, so I'm used to, and you mentioned this before too, we're very used, at this point, we're very used to, uh, you know, military guys coming up mm-hmm. their mindset their experience and stuff like that it was interesting even though it wasn't a huge deviation i don't think mm-hmm. but it was like enough of a deviation to seem like a big change <laughs> to go law enforcement yeah, you know yeah and it particular particularly okay i didn't grow up around drugs at all mm-hmm. like i don't think i've ever even you haven't s- been to 500 meth house no sir. meth cook what meth, <laughs> meth labs labs uh, what, what yeah what do you call it cook cook labs k labs or clan clandestine clandestine lab unit or something like yeah, that yeah yeah uh no the answer is no i have not um i've never seen meth before mm-hmm. i've never seen i've seen coke before i've never seen heroin before i've seen weed before weed is the only one mm-hmm. um i haven't se- i've seen a crack head Mm-hmm. With an empty crack pipe, I don't think I've ever seen real crack before. Check. Well, well, definitely, you could probably tell. I I was exploring the the police side of things, yeah. and especially you know the 
the investigation side of yes. things and the setup because that's yep. let's face it that's all stuff that I'm not super familiar with yeah. and it's very interesting because it's all about human nature you yeah. know informants and dealers yes. and police it's you know that's why they make all those movies about that yeah, kind of stuff bro, because so there's true. drama there right yeah. there's humans interacting you know in really stressful life-changing environments yeah and so yeah that definitely was interesting and and that's a you know, he's, he had a really, I mean, he's had a very interesting life, to say the least. Yeah. I mean, you could probably write a book about that one big bust or the other big bust or yeah. the one big, you know, you could write a book about any of those things. Yeah. And it would be very interesting and fascinating and you'd learn a lot. So he's done that over and over and over again and then went to Afghanistan and then had a, had a, had a hit on his head. That's in Honduras, crazy. right? <laughs> I started thinking about, you know, uh, being in, like, being in Iraq, when you're out on patrol, you think someone might try and kill you. You think they, someone will try and kill you, but you think they'll try to kill, like, you or someone near you. Yeah, it's yeah. not you. Just generally. At least I never felt that way. <laughs> I never felt like, you know, the bullets that say, I always make this joke, hey, you know, bullets say, they don't. You don't have a bullet with your name on it. Right, you have right. a bullet that says to whom it may concern. Yeah, yeah. He had a bullet. He had bullets, <laughs> plural, with his name on them. <laughs> yeah, I don't really crazy. like that feeling. No. I mean, you want to talk about? You think I'm paranoid right now? Which I am. Mm. I'm paranoid about stuff right now. If that was going on, yeah. bro, I would be in a level twelve alert mode. No one would be getting near me. Oh, yeah. It'd be pretty crazy to see. I think. <laughs> yeah, there's something very specifically sinister about a plan to kill you. To kill specifically. you specifically. Yeah. Right, right. Whoa. Yeah, I don't think, no, I, yeah, no one's ever specifically said, we're going to kill Jocko. <laughs> Other than Dean Lister made that one uh, well, CD. CD yes. Yeah, he yeah, made the Kill Jocko CD, but yeah. that was just a CD. That was just music. He wasn't actually trying to kill me. No, no, it, so. was, it was somewhat of a conspiracy, though. Yeah. I don't know. I will yeah. give him that. The um, the law enforcement part of it, too, which – so a lot of times when you guys start to talk about Iraq, Afghanistan, and I understand, but it does seem like, okay, that's a cra- that's a different time and a faraway place. Mm-hmm. But now he's over here talking about San Bernardino Phoenix. and San Phoenix Bernardino, and yeah, like yeah. all this stuff. And you're like, man, all this stuff right now is going on right now. Like probably pretty close to here. Oh, you real know? close to here. So and currently going on yeah, right now at this just, moment. Yes, like exactly. at this moment, there's an informant that's sitting buying some drugs from somebody. There's a bust about to happen yep. right now. Something that I've I've literally no exposure mm-hmm. to. So to me, that is like, oh man, that's kind of crazy. I did want to ask him about lifting. Yeah, but we would have been here for a long. That time. could have been a long, long time. I thought you would at least want to compare bicep workouts <laughs> with him. You know, my man is getting his lift on. Oh, for sure. For yep. sure. Which actually, and I was going to ask him too, but he said he's age 52 yep, right, he's now. 52 right and now. And if you can look like that at 52, right. I mean, I don't know if he's getting ready for a show or yeah. something like that, but if you can look like that at 52, that's like, it. not only is it eye-opening, but hey, it's like promising. Let, you, you know what? Let's just go ahead and restate that. If you can look like that at 22 <laughs> or 32 right. or 42. It's true. Yeah. I'd be less surprised. But surprised, sure. it does kind of set this a little bit better of a calibrated standard, yeah. you know, kind of gives like uh, those of us who want to maintain muscle mass, we'll say, yeah. uh, kind of <laughs> gives you some hope on that one, you know, and you know, he's not weak either. 
Oh, for sure. So it's not yeah, like Yeah, and he didn't go into much, but but I, I, you know, read some stuff about him and some bios and stuff, but he won all kinds of, like, you know, awards for football, and yeah. uh, he's just a great athlete and just jack and steel. So for sure, just for those of us that want to maintain muscle mass, have you ever met someone that didn't? I guess occasionally you get maybe a wrestler, like a fighter, mm-hmm. or someone that's li- literally going down a weight class below their what they can cut. Right. You know, sometimes people say, "Oh, I'm wrestling at 172. I'm gonna go down to 162, mm. and I'm already shredded. So I'm yeah. going to lose muscle mass." Right? Yeah. Occasionally, that might happen. Right. I think when people get into some, if they get into some endurance sports, maybe like triathlon or something, they might want to yeah. lose some muscle mass. Maybe. I yeah, and I'm taught. Wait, what are you asking? Like, is there? Have you ever known somebody that said, "Oh, I'm really looking to find out how I can lose some muscle mass"? No, 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 <laughs> <laughs> no, negative. No, just for for performance sake. Yes, that's yeah. essentially it. But that's a rare case. Um, just life in general. They say after age whatever thirty or something like that, like things like degenerate pretty quick huh. or whatever. That's weird. And then muscle mass is one of those things where if you just lifted. Like, you're going to lose muscle mass as you get older, straight up. Mm. You're just going to lose it. Uh, my daughter was telling me, my daughter's in college, and she's studying. But she was, yeah. w- I was up with her, and she was telling me that she she's out there jacking steel and working out. She's yeah. got her little friend group, <laughs> and they, which is cool because their little friend group, they're all, they're all into working out. Yeah, And she's training that jiu-jitsu. But well, she was telling me because she's studying – some kind of kinesiology, some kind of physiology. Mm-hmm. I keep forgetting what they call it now. When I was younger, so she's studying nutrition science and mm-hmm. what we used to call exercise physiology was a minor people would get, right? Sure. They don't call it that anymore. I forget what they call it, but that's well, essentially. kinesiology. Maybe that's what she, I think that. But that's it. different than okay. exercise well, physiology. She's studying stuff. <laughs> she's studying know, stuff about working uh, out okay. kind of, right? Okay. Again, getting right. stronger. Yes, sir. But she says she was saying, "Hey, when you if you don't lift, yeah. you immediately start like losing muscle, just degenerate." Yeah, and it's not it's not like a. I mean, it doesn't matter like the process. At the end of the day, you're losing you're mm-hmm. losing your muscle mm-hmm. and a lot most of its functionality. Yeah. Move it or lose it. Yeah, and then resistance training, which is lifting, is the best one, um, <laughs> is the thing that induces muscle like growth yeah. and or maintenance, depending on how big yeah. your muscles are. So, yeah, it it makes sense. So, basically, go lift, please. Go lift. Work out, you know. I mean, resistance, right? That's another thing my daughter was saying. She's saying, oh, your bones. Yes. Your bones. If you're not putting your bones under pressure. Now, that's because you could argue, well, you know, running is good, too, which it is. Yep. And you could say swimming is good, too. That's good, too. But you got to put weight on your body. you got to put resistance on your body to make your bones stronger. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and uh, that's the uh, the point I think overall that I get from that so the beginning of what you're essentially mm-hmm. saying is all kind of exercise has its like ma- and major by the way when you compare it to no exercise all exercises have major benefits mm-hmm. major they're all different though so good so good uh, all right so if you're working out which you are you probably need some some fuel for you you get some Jocko fuel JockoFuel.com. You can get protein. You know, you could get protein from a lot of places. Yep. You can get it from steak, recommended. Yes, Chicken, sir. recommended. Sushi, if you're Echo Charles. Yes, sir. Right? Yeah. Big what time. percentage of 
protein do you get from sushi? Like 70% <laughs> and the other 30% is milk. <laughs> I would literally say like literally probably like 50%. Not Recently not, but overall do, do 50%. Do you make sushi at your house ever? No. You I just have to get it from place. a place. Yeah, and you know. Your place. Do you know? Do you know? Do they know your order already? Do yes. you order the same thing all the time? Yes. For your whole family. Everyone's getting everything. Like everyone's getting the same. Sarah will You're like, get hey, it's the Charles stuff. residence. We need our food. Sarah I, goes variable. Literally, like you're, I, I see your face and you're kind of making a joke, but I mean, kind of. No, no, no. I, I've I'm being some, serious. Uh, the answer is yes. Yeah. In fact, I call the place because there's a place literally walking distance from my they house. Got, they got color ID? Yep. Oh, so they're they like, say, it's Hi, in Echo. the oven, son. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's not in the oven. Oh, it's, it's getting cut raw. <laughs> yes, sir. Under oh, yeah. the knife. I'll call. They'll be like, Hi, Echo. How are you? Yeah. That's it. That's how they answer the phone. Yeah. Then I'll be like, I want this. I got to say my order. And she already knows. Boom, 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 yeah. boom. Yes. Fully. How much is the cost? Um, It depends. So some days they're closed or they close late. So if I, Or they close at like 930. Mm-hmm. And there's another place that closes at Midnight, mm, so I'll get it delivered nice. at midnight. That one's way more. That one's like hundred bucks uh-huh. per just for me. Oh, dang, yeah. Then, how, but, how about at the, with, the for the spot. whole family? No, how about just you at the regular spot? Oh, like sixty. So mm, okay, that's a good deal given given like what I get. They have good prices over there. Kaki sushi. Yeah, that's good. Well, you're probably gonna need some milk to wash that down. Yes, sir. To to get the sweetness because yes. sushi's not sweet, right? Is it? No, sir, it is not sweet. <laughs> you can get some mochi you know ice cream afterwards. If I you don't want. like mochi ice cream. Dang, bro. I don't like that. It tastes like, um, tastes like uncooked you know, bread around. Oh, what, what do they call that? What do they call it? It tastes like uncooked bread wrapped around a piece of ice cream. <laughs> Who made that up, right? <laughs> Who made that up, right? <laughs> what makes that funny is how accurate you kind of are. It is, right? <laughs> In a way. Like, if you look at a certain way. Because it is essentially like a dough. That's like, right, dough. Okay. Uncooked dough. But uncooked it's like dough, rice right? dough. Like, it's a, it's mochi. That's why. You know yeah. what mochi is? No. Have you ever had mochi? Just mochi? No. It, you know that wrapping that you're talking yeah. about? It's just that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it tastes good. But in Hawaii, you can get it. Oh, man, it's yeah. the best. But, but, but my family was, like, somehow amped about mochi. Uh, and yeah. so they got me amped. They got me hyped. This oh, was a couple cream. years ago. They, oh, you know, we get this dessert. Like, we had to go somewhere to get it, right? Yeah. So we get in the car. We go. We're going to get mochi. And I'm, I get mine. I'm like, I don't think mine's cooked because <laughs> it doesn't taste good. Right? It tastes like dough. Well, like you said, it's dough. Is it mochi ice cream? Yeah. There's, yeah. Then there's there's ice cream in the middle of it. But yes, you wrap it in a piece of dough. Like, what's the point? Yeah. That's Why don't true. you do that? Why would you do that? You are right because it's not that sweet either. So no. you're like, oh, I feel like mine's not cooked. No. Uh, it's not. So anyways. All right. So if you're not into mochi ice cream yeah. and you, because mochi ice cream is just ice cream really. Yeah. So that's not healthy. Milk yeah. on the other hand, yeah. healthy, way more protein than mochi, mochi ice cream. it doesn't taste like dough. <laughs> it doesn't taste like dry flour dough. Is it odd that I'm like, there's a tiny, tiny part of me that's kind of insulted that you don't like mochi or mochi ice cream? <laughs> Like I'm like Jock, you know, you ever have that feeling where it's like one time? Okay, so I'm a picky eater, right? I understand. I'm a picky eater. I don't like a bunch of different foods. Yeah. I was out with my wife one time. This was no, she wasn't my wife. She was just a girl that I had met, but mm-hmm. I was kind of into her like a lot, right? Oh yeah. But anyway, you're talking about your current wife. My current back wife, then. yes, Got my it. current wife back then. Gotcha. But you, we were going out, and she wanted me to try something, something I knew I didn't like. I think it was yogurt. <laughs> But not yogurt, you know. I'm an American. Uh, yes, I am sir. an American that I grew understand. up in the '80s. So, so yogurt to me was a freaking Dan and yogurt, yeah, you know, yeah. filled with sugar sure. and blueberries, like 
sauce at the, On the bottom, bottom or whatever. Yeah. <laughs> like those things. Those sure. things are good because they're filled with sugar. So, but this was, we were, we were overseas and I had already made the mistake of thinking that yogurt overseas equated to a Dan and sugar filled yogurt mm-hmm. that I ate when I was 12 years old and ate nine of them because they tasted good. Yep. But I realized that when other people ate yogurt, it was just this weird tasting whatever with uh, weird cucumbers in it or something. Cucumbers. So anyways, my my wife, yeah. who wasn't my wife yet, she said, oh, try this. She's from England, so she's all nice or whatever. Oh, try this. Mm. And I go, oh, no, it's okay. I don't really like that. She goes, no, just try it. She's She had the same attitude that you're implying right now. Like yeah. she was kind of mad. Yeah. As if, you know, mm-hmm. as if you were saying, oh, I don't, you don't like air. What do you mean? You don't like air. Of course you like air. Yeah. She's like, oh, no, no, just try it. It's, just, it's yogurt. It's good. And I go, no, I don't really like it. So, you know? She goes, no, just try it. Mm-hmm. And she started escalating. Kind of imposed it. So I'm trying, I go, okay. You know, I take a little spoonful. It's freaking disgusting. <laughs> <laughs> I knew it was. I mean, it, it was, you know, so, so, so mochi, whatever, ice cream isn't that bad. Yeah. I can stomach it, yeah. but I'm not going to make an effort to eat it. Now, mulk, I will make effort to eat. Yeah. Mulk is, you you get that, hey, I will do what it takes to get some mulk up in here. Yep. I Last uh, night had a mulk shake double mm-hmm. with a ham. It wasn't ham, it was turkey sandwich. Mm-hmm. Boom. Late that, that's night. a full, what a, that's, a, that's a pleasurable scenario. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? Mine was the basic mulk shake, by the way. What's basic? Just the the milk. It was lactose free milk. Okay. Because yeah. I had it for some yeah, other yeah, stuff yeah, I was making, yeah. and just regular milk. That's it. No no banana. No nothing. But you got that little Sammy on, yep. and then you put down that milk. That's a quality Perfect. scenario Perfect. right there. Yes, You're good sir. to go. Oh Look yeah. Yeah, and it was like no matter if I was into the extra protein at the time, and I was, but even if I wasn't, it's like kind of like a cool little. <laughs> <laughs> like a dessert, you know what I'm saying? <laughs> come on, bro, uh, come on. Get the drinks at Wawa. You can get all of it at Vitamin Shop. Appreciate it. Go to originusa.com. Mm. We got some cool stuff for sale there. Boots, jeans, T-shirts. Most important, jujitsu geese. Yeah. I trained some I trained some jujitsu up at Paragon San Luis oh, Obispo. Yeah. Paragon Slow. It's so cool, man. You go anywhere right now, and there's jujitsu, and the people are awesome. Everyone's cool. It's just freaking legit. Great class, but bunch of awesome people there. So, and you know, you get. I, you know, it's interesting, bro. A lot of lot of origin geese out there. A yeah. lot of origin geese out there. People want to buy origin geese yeah. because they know that they're made in America. Bro, I saw. I, uh, uh I don't know if it's, what do you call it, a mini docu. It was video mm-hmm. about like American manufacturing, mm-hmm. or it was about manufacturing, and they were just it was talking about like kind of the history of it or whatever, yep. and the reasons that you know whether it be China or all these, but like it's kind of like they they kind of have to do the manufacturing for all these different reasons, and it depends on the product and all this stuff, right? But they kind of have to do it, that's, otherwise that's it's kind of like that was kind of the storyline. Yeah. Yeah. But then there were there are a little a few exceptions in there that they didn't go specific on, but they were less just like China's doing this, this, this because of this. And to do it anywhere else, it's like it's it's just unrealistic, mm-hmm. you know, kind of a thing. But then all the exceptions, when I kind of like deduced all the exceptions, I was like, oh wait, that's why Origin can do all this stuff. They do have to make certain sacrifices, but with the sacrifices comes like more basically the detriments that that places like China or whatever they call them, what do they call it? Affordable labor. 
<laughs> affordable labor. Know, right? It's freaking slave labor, bro. Yeah. Um, it's kind of like that, for example. But here you get basically each laborer or whatever. They have like actual quality of life oh, that, sure. that reflects on the end product kind yeah. of a thing. So anyway, you can kind of go down the line and be like, oh, I see. But here's the thing. At the end of the day, my point is like what they do is like, dang, that's kind of not kind of. That's like that's a very unique thing that they're doing. Who's they? Origin, Origin USA. Yes, Us. Sir. We. Us. This we is a very doing. unique thing that we yeah. are doing. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, go to OriginUSA.com <clears throat> for that. We also have a store. It's called Echo Store. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's the forwarding area. Jocko Store. Dot com. That's where you can write. That's where you can get your shirts and ha- your merch. It's good stuff on there, mm-hmm. too, by the way. It's not just like cheap, you know, what do you call low cost uh, to the you know lowest common denominator, uh, lowest bidder. What is that expression? Yeah, it's not bidder. either. Whatever the expression is, it's not that. It's quality. Good stuff. If you want to represent and represent hard and look good and feel good, by the way, yes. You can get all kinds of good stuff on there. Jockostore.com. Uh, subscribe to the podcast. And also check out JockoUnderground.com. It's very interesting what's happening right now in the world. Yep. And look, yeah, there's there's a war going on right now, an insane war, right? A, a, a war that the likes of which we have not seen in a long time in in Ukraine. So that's happening. But meanwhile, you got just crazy things happening all around the world. You got censorship happening. You got people shutting down websites, shutting down people from speaking you've got control media influenced by the government influenced by big tech all in what it's it's crazy stuff happening right now jockounderground.com if you want to help out where we have a little little bastion of our own where if we need to retreat to to rebuild we'll be in there jockounderground.com if you want to support that you can check that out we have a youtube channel we have a the origin usa has a youtube channel so check both those out um, what else we got? Psychological Warfare. Mm-hmm. It's just a little album. The Wednesday you can uh, you can download this album if you and if you have moments of weakness, it's basically Jocko telling you how to get past those moments of weakness. Very helpful on those moments. Trust me. Even if you don't have a lot of them, you can just have one. Occasional Boom. one. Reduce it maybe to zero. You're, maybe you're addicted to mochi. <laughs> <laughs> uh, FlipsideCanvas.com. Dakota Meyer, my brother, has got cool stuff to hang on your wall. I've written a bunch of books. Check them out if you want to. Especially check out the Warrior Kid books. That's where you can have a huge impact. You can have a huge impact on a kid's life just by getting that kid those books. So check that out. Echelonfront.com. It's our leadership consultancy. We have an event called The Muster. We have one in Dallas. It's sold out. So sorry about that. But we have other ones. You can check that out. We have online training at Extreme Ownership Academy. ExtremeOwnership.com, a bunch of information on there about being a leader and about being a human being. It'll help you with everything in your life. So check that out. If you want to help out service members, active and retired, you want to help with their families, Gold Star families, check out Mark Lee's mom, Mama Lee. She's got an incredible charity organization. Go to AmericasMightyWarriors.org if you want to help out. Also check out Heroes and Horses, Micah Fink. He's got a bunch of awesome stuff going on. Once again, uh, to contact Joe Pirasante, his his website is joep.us, and he's also got a LinkedIn account. 
which is Joe Pierasante. And he's got a Facebook as well, which is Joe Pierasante, I-B-B-F. IBBF Pro. Pro, right. yep. International Bodybuilding Federation Pro. Mm-hmm. So check that out. As far as Echo and I go, we're both on Twitter. We're both on the gram. We're both on Facebook. Echo's at Echo Charles. I'm at Jocko Willink. But you know, just look out. Because you're, you're, you step in there, you're going to be fighting the algorithm. You, that's what's happening. You're going to be fighting the algorithm, so be careful when you step in there. Thanks once again to Joe Piersante for coming on, um, f- for just setting an incredible example of tenacity and of perseverance. And, I mean, just him saying, him putting the perspective of becoming blind Becoming wounded, becoming blind, and and he says, "Yeah, no, you can't. No use crying over spilled milk." To put those two in the same sentence and actually behave that way, truly inspiring person. So thank you, Joe, for coming on, and thanks to all the military personnel out there around the world that stand up and fight for freedom and liberty. And I know there's some of you out out there right now that are truly standing up and fighting for freedom and liberty. So thank you for holding the line. And thanks to our police and law enforcement, and tonight especially, thanks to the DEA, the Drug Enforcement Agency, men like Joe Piersante that are out there trying to protect us all from the evil of drugs and the violent crime that it produces. And also thanks to firefighters, paramedics, Border Patrol, EMTs, dispatchers, correctional officers, Secret Service, all the first responders. Thank you for your service here on the home front. And everyone else out there, well, what excuses do you possibly have? (laughs) Right? If someone like Joe can go through what he's gone through, can suffer what he suffered, can still go out there every day and get after it. And, and you know, he said something. He said, you can't make a case sitting behind a desk. And that's some pretty good advice, not just for law enforcement, but for life. What you have to do is go out there every single day and get after it. Until next time, this is Echo and Jocko, out.